Good morning and Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Hi. You guys. This Shabbat Shalom. Morning. Shabbat morning. Shalom. Morning, Doctor P. Uh, hey, ready? Hey, Dave. How are you? Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom, Stephen. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, Lori. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, Angela. Good to see you. Hi, Olga. Hey, good to see you, my Shabbat friend. Shabbat Shalom, Doctor P. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. All our names. Our name Angel. Let's keep adding our brothers and sisters here as we join together from really all over the world. It's so good for us to gather, and I'm so glad to see all of you. I wish I had a bigger screen. I really need to put you guys up on my big screen so that I can get, you know, a whole ton of people. There you, you go. Everybody, because right now I kind of have to slide through everything. Hi, Zach and Natalie. Hi. Hi, Judy. Hi, Shell. Hey, Chris. How are you? Hey, Chris, I need to talk to you a little bit, brother. I was wondering if I'm going to be out of town a little bit. I was hoping maybe you might be able to run the Sabbath meeting for the next couple of weeks. You think you could do that? I saw that. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Good. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, as you guys can kind of hear, I'm running into a little bit of a sore throat. Hi, Felix. Hi, Melissa. Good to see you guys. I see you, Debbie. And John Barr, I see you too. Hi, Julie in Illinois. Good to see you. There's Lisa. Good. I'm glad you're here. Let's see, we're gonna. Oh, hey, David from London is joining us, and Euphrasia is joining us. Right on. And of course, we have our usual suspects who are all the people we love so much that contribute so much to what we do, you know, like Shell and like, uh, like uh, Danny and Ethel. And of course, there's Danny and Ethel. He's not going to be on for two weeks. And here comes, here comes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've, I've got to be gone for a couple weeks, guys. Yeah, the uh, you know the problem is is that I'm I'm going to be traveling. We're going down to um, we're going to visit the um, we're going to visit the uh, the Steffer offices in Montana and spend some time with David and Penny and to really try to get our act together. Which you know is interesting. Like I mentioned Thursday night, you know our uh, our printer has hit us with a thirty percent price increase. <clears throat> uh oh. But we think we can absorb that. So we're going to be absorbing it uh, for as long as we can. And um, that's just how we're going to move ahead. And we've got some things we can do. You know, it was so funny. I got to tell you guys a story about the company, if you don't mind my saying so. But uh, last year we were talking and I was telling David and Penny, we need to buy a truck. You know, we need, we need a box truck where we can pick up our own stuff because the trucker strike is coming, you know. And we need to be able to handle all this stuff. And, and, and he was like, nope, 
no way, we're not doing it. I don't want a box track around the warehouse, forget it. And I'm like, well, you ought to think about it. Well, then the next thing you know, our printer is like, we're going to be late. And how late are, you, how late are they going to be? Well, we're going to be after the trucker strike has begun. So uh, good luck getting your books. So David calls me in a panic. What are we going to do? I said, well, you know, I'm going to buy a plane ticket to Detroit and we'll rent a truck and drive the books out ourselves, you know. Which is, you know, driving the books from Detroit to Montana in, uh, in February puts you on I-90. And John, John Kolb here can testify that the roads there through uh, South Dakota may be um, more ice-free than they are in North Dakota. But nonetheless, you're still driving through some challenging, challenging weather. And uh, But anyway, we were prepared to do that, but we didn't have to do it because our printer actually stepped it up got stuff delivered to us early which was quite good so uh, john i hope i uh hope i haven't stepped on your turf there my friend in in uh, in dakotas but uh, but at any rate so we're almost all here we've got a lot of a lot of friends that are joining us here i want to thank you guys for being so prompt uh in joining the the sabbath meeting this morning you know um dr p yes hi edith well we still have the um you read classes on Wednesday? Uh, yes, we will. Yeah. I'm going to be, I'll be teaching the Ivory class from, um, uh, not this week, but next week I'll be teaching it from Montana. And which, as you know, could make things pretty interesting because then you have to teach Ivory with a little bit of a twang, you know, a little bit of an accent. <laughs> Dr. Pigeon, I have a quick question too. Are we still doing our show Tuesday? Yes, we're still doing our show Tuesday. Yeah. Very good. I'm not going to miss it. It's just, it's just uh, the Thursday night. I'm not going to be able to do because I'm going to be on a plane. And Saturday, I'm not going to be able to do because we're going to be traveling as well. So it's going to be a little bit difficult. And so if Chris, if Chris, if, and Chris, I know, brother, you're, you're um, quite skilled at being able to do it. I think you're going to be able to handle it pretty well. And I think it's important for our fellowship to continue to gather without missing a beat, if you know what I mean. And it's especially now, travel for your brother Pigeon. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. What's the sick? Can you say it again, Lynn? We pray for safe travel for. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, you know, I have to tell you, I mean, you know, the, um, you know, this morning was, um, this morning was kind of difficult. I mean, last night was difficult at our, at our Friday fellowship. But before we talk about that, let's pray because we need the Holy Spirit to really govern our words. Okay. So, Heavenly Father, we lift this morning to you, giving great thanks for the Shabbat. Thank you for calling us out to be your people and to follow in your ways. And your ways are good, and we love your ways. And we just seek to meditate and to know those even better and better as time goes by. Thank you for being our provision, for being our guide, for leading us to uh, fresh water and to place us in under, under your rod and under your staff, where we are protected from the things that are coming on the earth. Father, we give thanks to your name and we, we give thanks that you have placed your name upon us that we might say to you, Yahweh Elohai, you are our Elohai. And so, Father, we give thanks for this morning. We pray that you would be with us in spirit, guide our words, keep us on track. Do not allow any uh, things that would disrupt, disrupt the shalom of our meeting this morning as we gather for Shabbat to take a rest from, from the difficulties of the world that we might bless you. 
the liftings in the name of our Yahusha, our atoning grace, and he who opened the door to your throne. Amen. Amen. So, you know, so I, I have to tell you last night, I mean, uh, you know, we were talking about the guys in the group, and of course, uh, you know, virtually everybody I talk to right now has a very heavy heart about the things that are coming on the earth. And we know that, um, uh, oh yeah, I hear Daniel's driven a class A in the winter on I-90. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Thanks, Daniel, for filling us in on that. I appreciate that. Um, but when we talk about, when we talk about the things that are coming on the earth, well, okay, so be it. But let's take a look real quick. Like I want to go just to the beginning of the Torah portion because the Torah portion had something, we're just going to start with the initial part of it, because once we hit by Ikra, you know, we enter into, uh, we enter into Levitical instruction, right? And so uh, when you see this word Vayikra in the Hebrew, right? This is a, uh, this is a form of the verb. It's called the Vayiktal, the Vayiktal form of the verb. And Ezra is the one who named this Torah portion. So this Torah portion we're going to call Vayikra. And so Kara would be the root, Kara, which is to call out. And Vayi, it tells you about who is doing it, right? And he, Vayi. And so, so when you talk about and he, you're talking about third person singular, right? Third person singular on the verb. Vayi, Kara, Vayikra. And so the passage begins, and Yahweh called unto Moshe. And so the Vayikra is, and he called, and he called. <clears throat> but, so listen to this passage here, and he says, and Yahweh called unto Moshe, and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the assembly, <clears throat> saying, speak unto the children of Yasharel, and say unto them, if any man of you bring an offering unto Yahweh, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. And if his offering be of an ascending smoke sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the assembly before Yahweh. Okay. Now, when we see that, let's take a look at this passage in Romans. Okay. Because in Romans, in chapter 12, you see this. He says to us, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Elohim, that ye present your bodies. Hold on just one second. Okay, that's, that's Deborah. Okay, got it. I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto Elohim, which is your reasonable service. Now, with a lot of people misconstruing Paul or not understanding Paul, they don't realize what Paul is telling us here. This is a very high standard because what he's telling us is this. He's saying, look, you're going to be the sacrifice and you're not going to be a dead sacrifice. You're going to be a living sacrifice. You are to be a living sacrifice. And in that sacrifice, you are to offer yourself, what? Holy and acceptable. 
And we see here in Vayikra, when you're talking about making this sacrifice of a bull or anything ever you heard. It's not fitting in with the world, you know? It has to be a lamb without blemish or a bull without blemish. It has to be without blemish. And this is something for us to think about anytime that we are going to make an offering to Yah, whether it be of our service, whether it be of ourselves, whatever. Paul is telling us, let it be holy and acceptable. Let it be without blemish to Yah. So when you're making yourself a living sacrifice to Yahweh, you are to be without blemish. Now, that becomes kind of difficult, doesn't it? To be without blemish. Because Paul is calling us to a standard to, you know, to be free of the sin. Now, you know, last night we had a long discussion about the most difficult passages in 4 Ezra. That's 4 Ezra chapter 7. And in 4 Ezra chapter 7, he talks about these group of people who, when they die, are going to find themselves exposed to eternal punishment. And there's a reason why that's going to happen. And the reason why it happens is he sets out four reasons why it happens. One is, one is one reason why it happens is because they despise Yahweh. Although in Ezra, he uses the, he uses the word El Elyon, right? And El Elyon, if we, if we were going to use King James English, that would be God Almighty, El Elyon, God Almighty. But we use El Elyon in, in our passages to give you the Hebrew so you don't have any confusion about it. And what you see is that they despise El Elyon. That's the first thing, right? They heap scorn on his Torah. That's the second thing. The third thing is they do not walk in his ways. And the fourth thing is they trod down the people of Elohim. They trod down the people. So these are the four criteria that cause people to be cursed and sent into eternal punishment. And so conversely, when you're talking about, well, gee, I don't want to be one of those people that goes into eternal punishment. I want to be somebody that goes into something nicer than that. Well, okay. To do so, what, what do you do? Well, one thing is you love Yahweh with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. You love your neighbor as yourself. That's premise number one. Premise number two, you do what David did in Psalm 1. Meditate on the Torah day and night, right? That you love the instruction of Yahweh. Number three, right, is, is to follow in his ways, well, what does it mean to follow in his ways? You know, when I was doing Thursday night, we were talking about a very difficult passage in Judges, you know, this homicide that took place in Judges. Huge crime. And a huge crime that was not properly adjudicated. Well, under the Ten Commandments, you can see, well, you shall not bear false witness, you know, and you, and you can see some kind of generalized terms, but you don't see any of the lesser regulations, if you will, that would govern intelligent thought as to that crime. You don't see in the Ten Commandments 
the instruction in Deuteronomy that says by two or three witnesses, the matter is established. And especially if someone is going to be put to death, you don't do it on the testimony of one witness, right? And Debbie Jordan asked a, a really critical question in the chat during that, during that program. And she said, well, after 40,000 of the house of Judah had been killed in battle and the whole of the tribe of Benjamin had been completely destroyed, was the Levite happy with the vengeance he got for the rape of his wife? You know, when was he satisfied? Right? I mean, I thought it was a very good question. And, uh, but, you know, it, this passage that comes in Devarim in Deuteronomy uh, about the two or three witnesses, this is a down-the-road instruction from the, from the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments. And we see also, when you look at all of Scripture, we see further instruction along these lines, where in the supplemental books of Daniel, in the book of Bell and the Dragon, right? What's the teaching in the book of Bell and the Dragon? You know, Daniel does forensic investigation. And he says, look, if you think that this dragon is eating all this food that your priests are, are worshiping at night, then let's just do this. Let's just put flour on the floor. And then we'll come tomorrow morning and look. And they put flour on the floor. And what do they find? The priest, his wife, and their kids are in there taking all the stuff that was being offered to the, right? And, of course, when the king saw that, he had them executed. But, Dan, but Daniel teaches us, do a forensic investigation. And then when you read the book of Shushana, we see the teaching, cross-examine the witnesses to determine the truth of their testimony, Right? So these things kind of become instructive as to what we're going to see later in the emerging common law world. And the common law world that emerged, um, and remember that the common law emerged in Britain. It did not emerge in Europe. In Europe, whatever common law was beginning to grow was completely replaced by the Napoleonic Code. And the Napoleonic Code uh, essentially criminalizes everything, right? They have a statute for everything. Thou shalt not, you know, tie your, your, your left shoe before you tie your right shoe, this kind of a thing. And it's statutory driven, code driven, Napoleonic code. And so when you're called into a courtroom in Europe, generally speaking, you go before three judges and the judges work as your defense attorney and your prosecuting attorney. Whereas in the common law world, you have something entirely different. You have ancient common law doctrines, which are almost all expressed in Latin. You know, race ipsa loquitur, you know, these, uh, you know, habeas corpus, right? You're getting these Latin doctrines that are talking about the foundation of the common law. But this common law that emerged in the English-speaking world, completely two different juridical systems from the Napoleonic Code to the common law world, the common law world had testing on testing on testing on testing and a strong reliance on the teaching of Moshe on the, on this teaching of the, of the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. In fact, in Connecticut, when the state was first formed, they created the judiciary and the judge, the first judge to sit on the bench was talking to the governor and says, okay, well, look, 
we don't have the British common law here. So what am I supposed to do to adjudicate cases? And the governor walked up to him and slapped the Bible down on top of the thing. He says, there's all the law you need. Use that. And so the, the standards of Moses, and again, when we're talking about Torah, right? And this, you guys haven't heard me teach about this before, but, I'll, but I'm going to tell you this now. The, when you talk about becoming a student of the mitzvot, of Moshe's mitzvot, you come to understand that we have the foundation for tort law. We have the foundation establishing negligence versus intent. We have the foundation for damages, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is an assessment of damages. When you think about what we have in the modern world, if somebody breaks into your house and steals your TV, under the Torah, that person who stole your TV would have to give you double back of the value of the TV. In the modern world, he gets arrested, charged with a crime. He's going to go do some time in the prison, and you're not going to get dime one back. They might give you a victim's assessment or you get 35 bucks back or something like this, but you're not getting double back. You're never going to be recompensated like the Torah provides, right? So the Torah does give us standards of adjudication for criminal acts. It distinguishes criminal acts from tortious acts. It talks about the measure of damages. Sometimes you have uh, actual damages. Sometimes you have double the damages, right? It distinguishes between intent and negligence. You have all of these things that are laid out in the Torah. Now, one thing that doesn't exist, of course, in the Torah, you don't see it, is corporal punishment, right? Corporal punishment. And we know that in corporal punishment, what are you guys all laughing about? <laughs> Some of you are laughing about them. What's going on? Shelly, what's going on? I was talking to Chris and told him he got shanghaied right here on air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, Chris. Sorry about that, buddy. I was going to private message you, but I'm, you know, I'm so I'm so uh, so incredibly overburdened with my schedule right now. I just you know, I I could my I should have I should have private messaged you, brother. I'm sorry about that about Shanghai. Yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, you know, he's so up to the challenge. He's up to the challenge. Yeah, hallelujah. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, but at any rate, when we, so when we talk about the Torah, I want to kind of go through this a little bit because there is a very good book on um, understanding the Torah as a basis of law, okay? And it's called The Institutes of Biblical Law by R.J. Rushdoony. The Institutes of Biblical Law by R.J. Rushdoony. And this book, uh, he goes, basically the book is broken into 10 sections, which are the 10 Devarim. And then from that, he develops all of the uh, mishpatim, the mitzvot, that are set forth in Maimonides' Torah that he labels underneath each one of those. So you can really understand the most subtle nuances of the Torah and how they're applicable uh, to modern law. And in fact, I mean, after I read Rushdini's book, you know, I, I just came out of law school. Yeah, let me here. Let me put let me put in Rush Dooney. His name is Rush Dooney, something like this. I've got the book over here. I'll have to look. Let's see if I can find it here. Okay, can you guys hold on just one second? And I'll, I'll get the book here. Just... 
Yeah. <sighs> okay. So, um, let's see. The Institutes of Biblical Law by Rausa John Rush Dooney. So Rush, the Rush Dooney is, spell it correctly this time, R-U-S-H, Rush Dooney, Rausa John Rush Dooney, The Institutes of Biblical Law. And this book for me was extremely informative. And, and I, want, I do want to recommend it to you guys. It is a law book, okay? That's why it looks like a law book, because it is a law book. And so when you read inside, you know, there's no pictures. Right. And so the the work is um, it's gonna read like a law book, but I'll just tell you that. And uh, but it does give a very good illustration, and it is something that is worthy of note because when we talk about Hey, John, glad to see you back, brother. When we talk about, um, when we talk about uh, understanding Moses' Torah in application to our current life, you know, we're going to see that uh, you know, when, the, when the world comes apart, which is very close to doing right now, you're going to see that uh, there, there is an order, there is a standard, and there is a place we can go immediately to have an understanding about how we're going to live our lives. Because one of the questions you're going to need to know is what is lawful and what isn't. Because right now in our world, evil is good and good is evil. And much behavior that is actually considered righteous behavior in scripture is denounced as wickedness and is criminalized. And much of which is criminal behavior in scripture is legalized in our current world. And so when, when you get to a situation where you're wondering, what are we going to do in our community? What kind of behavior can we allow and disallow? This is an excellent guidebook for you to be able to see this. Okay. So I wanted to raise that issue. So when we're talking about this living sacrifice idea that's given to us by Ikra. So what else does Paul say? He says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect and the will of Elohim, that you may prove it. Now, this is part of the reason you guys are in this Shabbat fellowship by your own volition. You came here because you seek to have the answers in your own mind. If you, if you wanted to just go back and reiterate uh, and regurgitate what the pastor told you, you could hang out in your church. You don't have to come to a place where you're challenged and you have to, you know, you're more or less required to think for yourself and to use critical reasoning skills, right? You just go back to church and say, well, my pastor said, blah, 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 blah. But we know, and I mean, I hate to say it because I don't want to give all these pastors grief, but when you look at the end, you know, and I, I can't speak for the condition of South Africa or this, the condition of Ireland or, or the condition of any other place, but I can speak for the condition of America. And in America, we've had a complete destruction of the social order under the supervision of Christian pastors. I mean, that's what we've had. And where have been these Christian pastors in saying, this is unacceptable, that's unacceptable, this is unacceptable, and that's unacceptable. We're not going to allow you 
could put up a painting in the New York Metropolitan Art that shows uh, the, you know, uh, the Mashiach on a cross in a, in a bottle of urine. I'm not going to allow you to do that. I'm sorry, that's unacceptable. You're not going to do it. Sorry, you're not going to desecrate the name of Yahweh. I'm sorry, you're not going to codify what the scripture calls criminal behavior. You're not going to make it legal. You're not going to. And, you know, and there's standards under the Torah, for instance. <coughs> the Torah is quite clear. You are to make uh, someone of the tribe of Israel, of the tribes of Israel, your king, not someone who is not of the tribes of Israel. And so this becomes a standard that was we, we tried to hold to in the U.S. Constitution. And the U.S. Constitution in particular, the article, uh, article 2, section 1, paragraph 5, that was written by John Jay, the first Supreme Court Chief Justice, said that no person but a natural-born citizen of the United States can be its president. And, uh, you know, the media and the CIA operated media told us that natural born didn't mean a thing, right? But the language in the constitution says we have to be at least 35 years old too. But what if they had a 30 year old? Would that mean a thing? You know, but natural born most surely meant something. It means that your father was an American citizen when you were born. And there's not, there's a difference between being native born. Oh, I was born in the United States even though my parents weren't American citizens, i.e. Kamala Harris. But your father has to be natural born and all the birth certificates Barack Obama provided showed his father being a Kenyan citizen. So he, was, he could never establish his natural birth, but he wasn't the only one that wasn't natural born. George Bush, George H.W. Bush was born George Scherf, a German citizen. He too was not natural born. And so you see that, you know, when, you know, and, and this is something I mentioned too on Thursday, I said, look, when you talk about name stealers, and I mentioned a bunch of names, right? Vladimir Ulyanov, Yosef Jugashvili, Victor Mordecai, uh, a certain Mr. Schickelgruber, George Scherf, Leslie Lynch King. Do you guys know who Leslie Lynch King was? That was Gerald Ford. His real name was Leslie Lynch King. George Scherf was George Bush. Vladimir Ulyanov was Lenin. Joseph Jugashvili was Stalin. Victor Mordecai went by the name Karl Marx. And Mr. Schickelgruber took on the name Adolf Hitler. But in every case, we have name stealers, right? They stole the name and they came in and invented something that brought evil to the world. And so it is, you know, we see this is, this is why you see the Torah has particular regiment. So I'm going to leave you guys with this and then we can kind of share the, the platform here a little bit. But I'm going to leave you with this because when you guys get into your own study in renewing your mind, even though we know that the commandments are hierarchical, okay? And you get this hierarchy, it's given to us in the gospels because Mashiach says what? 
love Yah with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself, from this hangs all of the Torah and the prophets. So you can see that there is a hierarchy. And at the top of that hierarchy is Shema Yasharev, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad, which I just can't imagine that the Mashiach said that in Aramaic and not in Hebrew. I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, he spoke Aramaic because Aramaic was a language at that, that time. Well, according to the Greeks telling the story, that was the case. Yeah. But so you can see you have this you have this singular idea at the top of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is Shema Yasharel. But even when you look at that, Shema Yasharel, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, right? It's like when he when he gives us when he says, My name is Ehaya, Asher, Ehaya, right? So you, you get this in two different places, this idea of this hmm, twofold, Yahweh. Elohenu Yahweh, Asher Echaya, Asher Echaya, right? Same kind of idea. It's kind of uh, the way he's reiterating this. And so when we see this idea, this tells us this, you have to have this absolute fundamental at the top of the pyramid. There is a creator. There is a singular force of creation. There is a singular authority. There is a singular truth. There's not multiple truths. There's a singular truth. There's a singular authority and a singular creator from which all things stem. And that premise becomes critical to your understanding because once you understand there is a fundamental truth, there is a truth that we might be wandering around in the dark going, I can't figure this out. I can't figure this out. But we know that there is a fundamental truth. And because we can't figure it out, the problem lies with us. We haven't worked out a correct methodology. We haven't seen an underlying factor. All of these things are not here. So this is why we're required to renew our mind continually that we might prove the issue. And so the question doesn't become what we get in modern science really since Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin says, assuming there is no creator. We've concluded there is no creator. Well, logically, that's 100% consistent, right? That's modus ponens, A, therefore, A. Assuming no creator, therefore, there is no creator. But the inquiry of science before that had always been, what did the creator do? That has been the inquiry of science for time immemorial until we get to Charles Darwin. We seek to figure out what the creator did. And then all of our methodologies, whether they be, whether they be math or science, or philosophy or theology, it all comes down to the same inquiry. We're just building different platforms by which we can understand that uh, we can understand what's going on, right? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So. Let's continue on this path a little bit. Let's go to Olusei. Olusei, how are you, my friend? Hello, can you hear me, Dr. P? Yes, can hear you, yes. All right. Um, regarding your show on Thursday, uh, why you allowed uh, 80,000 people to die for a sin of one person? Um, I think what happened was um, Yah commanded them when they got to the land that he, uh, he promised uh, 
their forefathers that the remaining enemies that they should go forth and eradicate them. But they got too comfortable. And so when they wanted to go against each other, he allowed that to happen because they disobeyed his commandment. I think that's what happened. That's why he allowed the 80,000 people to die. I, I may be wrong. But, uh, no, I, I understand your point, And I think you're making a very good point there. And I think we're going to see that too when we go back and look at the previous two chapters to determine who are these sons of Belial. Because we can see clearly the pattern that the demands they make at the door of the old man were the same demands that were made in Sodom. And we know that in Sodom, those were Canaanites living in Sodom. I mean, that's pretty clear. Genesis tells us who was living in Sodom because the border of Canaan was Sodom at one side, right? And so with that being the case, now you have to look and say, okay, well, look, this is like down the road from that. This is certainly down the road from the whole of Yasharel, right? All of the tribes are developed. All of the tribes were in Egypt. All of the tribes left Egypt under Joshua. They all come back to the land. The land is divided among the tribes. But we know that when going back in the history of the tribes that our friend Esau went and married two Hittite women and a Canaanite, married two Hittites and a Canaanite woman, right? Yeah. And so who were these sons of Belial? Well, I think, you know, and, and the scripture says certain sons of Belial, certain sons of Belial, right? And so I think you see that they, that what they did was they moved and you're right, because the tribes did not destroy them out of the land like they were told to do, you had residue left in the land. They were still living there. And you had a group of people who had rejected the Torah. I mean, all of the premises that were talked about before Ezra, right? They despised Yahweh. They scorned his Torah. They did not walk in his ways. And they trod down the people of Elohim. They did those four things, these sons of Belial. And you see something very interesting because they claim to be of the tribe of Dan. But when you get back in 1718, they claim to be of the tribe of Dan and they're like out sojourning, right? This group of people from the tribe of Dan, they're out sojourning and they end up in Giva. They end up in the, the land of Benjamin. And so when they're there, these are the guys who are living in Giva. And so this guy shows up, the stranger shows up, hey, give us this guy, right? The same demand that was made in Sodom is now going to be made in Giva. And then when you look at the story, when we looked at the story that was on Thursday night, there were, if you go back and you look at those facts, it says there were 26,000 Benjamites that wielded the sword and, and 700 in the city of Giva, right? But who survived the massacre but 600 men who ran to the hills, right? So who were yes. they? Who survived the massacre? The men of Giva, the ones that that Yehuda had decided, we're going to kill everybody in Giva since we can't sort out who are the sons of Belial. We'll just kill everybody in Giva. And then at that point, we'll get them. They, it looks like they killed 100 citizens of Giva. The other 600 got away. They escaped. Which probably included the sons of Belial, right? So they got away with the crime. Benjamin did not. Yehuda did not, right? And 
the Levite got away with whatever it was that he did. You know, who knows if that girl was dead when he threw her over the back of the donkey and hauled her up to Shiloh, right? Who knows, right? Scripture doesn't tell us that. So, you know, so when you look at that now, these now you have two interesting facts that happen after this. Of course, in Judges, it says it happens before it. But you have this group of Dan that call themselves Dan who are in Giva, and they're looking for another place to live. We want our own community. And so they look around and they find this unwalled village up north. And this is one of these villages. Oh, nice. were of, um, I think they were of Zebulun. They were the yeah. house of Zebulun. So most of Zebulun is over here in Lebanon. And then here's this one village that's out here, right? Detached. It's away from them. And even though they're Zebulun people, they're over here. Nobody to account for them. Nobody's going by on, on you know, uh, Pony Express to reach them, right? None of that. And so they get there and they decide these guys are unwalled and unprotected. So they slaughter them, man, woman, and woman and child and all their animals. And then they call it the city of Dan. Now that city of Dan right now, at least what we're told is the city of Dan, sits there right now at the base of Mount Hermon, which when we talked about, uh, you know, the Edomites and who Esau was and where he camped, they said, well, he camped in the mountains of Mount Sayir. But Sayir appears to be taken from the name Syria, which comes from Sarah, Yah, which was that Yah had blessed Sarah. That's where the name Syria comes from. And so this Mount Sayir was probably up in what we now call Syria, which would be Mount Hermon, not down to the south of Israel. So Esau was camped up there on Mount Hermon, which, you know, we know even to this very day has strong pagan ties. Many people believe it's a portal for angels, right? Because when you read in Enoch, it tells us the angels came down through Mount Hermon, yeah. right? That's where they came down. And when, when Jacob has his dream, he sees Jacob's ladder. That was at Mount Hermon. When, when Mashiach is transfigured, that happened at Mount Hermon, right? They call it in the in New Scriptures, Chesare Philippi. But that was up at Mount Hermon. And here's the city of Dan right there at the base of Mount Hermon. And, but was it really Dan? Because you have Dan on one side who is a seafaring people. So they're sailing out of Yafo, which is now Tel Aviv. And they're sailing all over the Mediterranean. They're sailing all, you know, all, all around Europe. And ultimately they sail into the Northern coast of Ireland. And, you know, they have the, um, what do they call them in Ireland? Tuatha de Danann. In the ancient mythology, they say that there was a tribe that lived in the northern part of Ireland, Tuatha de Danann, the, the tribe of Dan. And they were up on the northern part of Ireland. They were in the northern part of Scotland. And of course, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, right? The Nordic people of the House of Dan. But the House of Dan also went around the, the Cape of Africa and had ports in as far as Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, they were in that area too. So Dan was parking in Nigeria and also parking up in Scandinavia. But there's one interesting part of Dan. Remember that Dan has this interesting kind of, there's, a, uh, there's an interesting kind of curse that's placed on the house of Dan by Yaakov in Genesis 49. 
And he tells them, you know, that Dan will judge his people, but Dan will be an adder that bites at the heel, right? And so we see that there is a part of Dan, at least that claimed to be Dan, with these guys who formed the city of Dan. Now it says, Dan shall leap over Bashan. Well, you might recall Og of Bashan. Remember the story of Og of Bashan? He was uh, a giant. They say his bed was 18 feet long. And Agabashan was up in this area that we would call right now kind of to the east of the Golan Heights in Syria. That's where Bashan was. And he was ultimately conquered by the, by the house of Manasseh and Manasseh took over running that area. But Agabashan, uh, so here he was, this is Bashan where he was located. And Dan being down here would be south of Bashan and Dan leaped over Bashan, leaped over Bashan. And so what you see is you see this leap over Bashan into the Black Sea. And when Dan got into the Black Sea, he begins naming rivers after himself because it's not Dan, it's Dan, Dan. You don't pronounce it Dan, you pronounce it Dan. And so what do we see in the Black Sea? Well, to the right, the Dan River followed by the Don Nister, followed by the Don Neper, followed by the Don Yub. These are the four main rivers that pour into the Black Sea, all named after Don. So there is a city in Russia <clears throat> right now. In Russian, it's called Rostov Nadanu. But we in English would say Rostov on Don. It's the city of Rostov on the Don River. And if you follow up that river, you'll see villages that are named after Don as far as 150 miles in on the river. If you go up the Danube, you will see cities that are named after Don all the way up in Hungary, where the river is a couple of hundred, three, maybe 300 miles in. But there are cities in Hungary that are named after Don. And it's the same thing in Ukraine, where the Dnester and the Dnieper rivers are. There are cities named after Don up in those areas. So this tribe, these sons of Belial that got away with the crime in Giva got away with the crime in Don, where they slaughtered the whole city. And Yehuda, look what Yehuda did. Oh, what are we going to do for these poor guys that don't have any wives? Let's go up to a village and slaughter everybody. Men, women, and children, and their except we'll save the virgin girls so that these guys have wives. This was the decision. And there is no, no one considers that a crime. No one considered that a crime. No one, no one looked at that and said, what are you doing slaughtering that city? Well, they didn't come down and join us to do battle against Benjamin. Therefore, let's go kill them all. I mean, it's an crazy, it's, a, it's an, an extreme violence that is really unprecedented in any other literature anywhere, but it's found right there in scripture, right? So with these sons of Belial, we may see very, very likely that these were Edomites, that they were Edomites that had done this crime and they had stolen the names of Dan. We're calling ourselves Dan, but we're Edomites. And these Edomites then go up and they populate the area of Ukraine that would later become greater Khazaria. Okay, that, that, that area. And they're displacing the tribe of Gimer, which who were the Sumerians or Chimerians. They're displacing the tribe of Balkars. 
and they're calling the area. And after the Khazarian Empire fell, that region that was from the northern part of the Caspian Sea that spread all the way into Poland was known in the Babylonian Talmud circles as Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz, okay? It was no longer called Khazaria, but it was called Ashkenaz. So this is why this this is why the, the crime scene investigation. And again, when you look at judges, there's there are a number of things from students of the Torah that will say, look, we don't know the whole story in Torah because we know for a certainty that the book of Ezekiel is out of order. Okay. Now, if you want to find the true order of the book of Ezekiel, go on to the Sefer website. And we have the book of Ezekiel in its proper order. And by the way, it is, um, it's cross-referenced, let's say. It's cross-referenced, which is to say that you have, we have it in order, and then we have its original scripture citation right next to the number of each verse. Okay, so we have each verse numbered the way it used to be and in its proper order. And that is a free download. You, you, can, you can get a free download right on the Sefer and get Ezekiel in its proper order. Now, we also know that Daniel is out of order. How do we know that? Because Belshazzar is killed in chapter five <clears throat> and then appears again in chapter seven, right? So it's very clear that you can see that Daniel too, the book of Daniel is out of order. So the question is, is the book of Judges out of order? That's a question. And there's another question <clears throat> about the pregnancy of Rivka, the wife of Isaac. Because if you recall, Isaac does the same thing, Yitzhak, he does the same thing that Abraham did. He shows up and he tells them, oh, Rivka is my sister. Remember this? He does the same thing Abraham did. Rivka is my sister. And the next thing you know, she's over here with some foreigner. Well, they tell you that that happened after uh, Jacob and, and Esau were born. But what if that's out of order? You know, we know that in, wow. um, in the modern world, it's possible for a woman yeah. to, to be impregnated by two men. Two men. And that yeah. the two children grow up at the same time in the womb, right? And they're born yeah. at the same time. So what you see, and that's different than fraternal twins. It's not fraternal twins. It's two different fathers. And I forget the, the technical name oh. for it now, but they know it's very possible. So what does scripture say? Scripture says two nations are in your womb, right? That's what is said to Rivka. Two nations are in your womb. And there's such a distinction between Esau, you know, Esau, and Yaakov. There is such a distinction. They're so completely different one from the other. They don't look like each other. One's hairy, one isn't. You know what I mean? I mean, they're just, it's like world's different. One wants to be a hunter. The other one wants to be a, uh, you know, live in a tent and, and grow crops. You know, I mean, it's just world's different. But the scripture does tell us two nations are there, you see? So what if that section of the Torah is out of order? You see what I'm talking about? So, yeah, I see. <clears throat> and, and of course- Even this, the way they aided each other from the pregnancy where they were fighting inside, like they never agreed from day one. From day one. They never yes. agreed from day one. I mean, it's so true. 
It's so true. There was never there was never any reconciliation between them. And there still is no reconciliation between them. So so anyway, when we when we see, as we begin to do this kind of forensic investigation inside the Torah, we begin now for a lot of people, this is very upsetting because if you're in a situation where you're in a church and your pastor's using the NIV and he's routinely telling you this is the inerrant word of God over and over and over again so that he can use the subtleties of what he finds in the book to, you know, manipulate your behavior. Uh, well, well would, it, would it be safe to say that, that Revelations is out of order? I do apologize for interrupting, Mr. Pigeon. I'm a big fan. I've been listening to you on Spotify. I'm a truck driver. But it's when I growing up, I've often been taught that Revelation isn't in chronological order. Well, thank you for interrupting, trucker. I mean, I look and I and thank you, by the way, brother, I, I love where you are right now watching you drive the truck. That's great. That's cool. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think you're I think you are right. I mean, Revelation, you have something very interesting going on in Revelation, too. We talked about this last night because a lot of people think that you go down Revelation going this happens, then that happens, then this happens, then that happens, then this happens. Now, here it is. Heteroparental super fecundation okay okay so laurie thank you for putting that up i don't know that any of us can can you get us can you give us that in latin please <laughs> i'm just kidding you. i'm just kidding you no what what a term right but there it is right that's the scientific description of it so trekking with creature let's go back to this for a second because when you look at revelation really what you see happening is you see this unfolding of an onion right that it's layer on layer. It's not one thing, then this, then this, then this. It's layer on layer on layer on layer. And as things go on, they get more and more intense as we go into the bold judgments. But Revelation is a spectacular, spectacular book. And, you know, it says in Revelation, those who study this book will be blessed from studying it. And it's so true. Now, in the Sefer, you'll find in the Millennium, a Millennial Edition, yeah, <laughs> Good thing you haven't looked at it before there, Rob. <laughs> Did you save anything in white? Did you save anything without, without any highlight out of there? <laughs> I hear you, brother. I mean, I love I love a book that's marked like that, man. It's just beautiful. You know, I mean, there it is. You, in your mind, it's creating a you know, semantic synapse, you know, when you read it that way. Yeah. But what we see is in Revelation, number one, like in the Millennium Edition, Sefer, we make the citation. Every verse has an Old Testament reference. Every single verse. And in some cases, the reference isn't just a verse out of the Old Testament, but rather an entire chapter or sometimes even two chapters that are being discussed in one paragraph or one verse in Revelation. So Revelation is a, you know, you know, have you guys heard about this AI Jesus that they've created? They've created. They, they took a database that was just scripture. And then they said, this is the only database that's coming into this AI component. Now let's put it to work and see what it comes up with. Well, guess what? This AI Jesus is prophesying, right? Now I've got to contact that guy and say, look, fine for you to give AI Jesus the 66 books. Now give him the Sefer. Now give him all 87 books and let's see what those prophecies look like, right? I think, you know, and then especially when this thing is used in the name Yahweh and stuff, I think you would be completely blown away. And this is what happens in Revelation. 
Revelation is kind of the AI compendium of the Old Testament, every verse being the citation of the Old Testament. So now the order of Revelation is remember that in Revelation 1, it says Mashiach is walking along and he has seven stars in his hand. And he stands among seven, in, in English, lampstands, but in the Sefer, seven menorahs. Okay, can you guys hold on for just one second? Hold on. Don't go away here. Chris, here's your chance to jump in and practice for next week. <laughs> Come on, Chris. Let's go. Thanks, John. <laughs> oh, if you guys were to part of this team, I don't know what I would do. Okay, so guess what? Steve brought his menorah. Okay. Now, you know, I've been meaning to do this for a long time, and I've never done it, but at least here I haven't. But I can show you in the menorah, you can see that we have seven lampstands, right? Boy, this menorah is looking a little tired. Okay. So you can see we've got seven lampstands. So when he says there are that Mashiach stands among seven of these, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. However, you don't count that way with the menorah. You have the shamash here in the middle. This is one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The middle and is the servant candle. The service candle, yeah, the servant lamp, yeah. right? The servant light. And so with this middle candle, this is uh, what, what you're going to find in Revelation is this. He's standing among seven menorahs, okay? And those seven menorahs, now we're going to be given those seven menorahs. So let's start out with the seven angels, right? Then we go to the seven churches. Then from the seven churches, we go to the seven seals, right? And from the seven seals to the seven trumpets, from the seven trumpets to the seven thunders, which cannot be uttered, from the seven thunders to the seven bowl judgments. So we have seven sevens, seven of these menorahs that are set forth now scripturally. So you have what's called the heptatic formula in Revelation that is given to us in the whole book. And typically what you find is you'll find, okay, first seal second seal, third seal, fourth seal, fifth seal, sixth seal. And then behold, the seventh seal is the servant lamp, which lights the next menorah. Right. And this goes on through, this goes on throughout revelation. So even though revelation may be per se out of order, and actually there's something that happens in revelation, because when you get to revelation 10, you have this phrase, Okay, here, John, take this book, right? You've read all of the right side pages. Now flip it over. You, you read left to right on the right side pages. Now flip it over and read right to left in Hebrew on the other side. Eat this book. It'll be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to give you a stomachache after you're done eating it. Is there any, is there any way to uh, precisely tell where we're at in revelations or is it just well kind of a so you've scene? asked some great questions and let, here let me just throw this out there's some very interesting things happening we talked a lot about revelation uh six one and the white horse 
And I think we've seen the white horse. I mean, when you talk about toxon, a toxon literally means a mask, but it also means toxic, means a toxin, you know, and it really, and so Revelation, the white horse really refers to this masking pandemic that we just went through. Okay. Now we're going into the red horse. Now the red horse is very interesting because when you look at the red horse, the passage there in Revelation 6, it says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Now, the word here for sword in Greek doesn't mean sword. It actually means dagger. So the better interpretation would be he was given a great dagger. He was given a great dagger and he took peace away from the earth. Okay, so there's a couple of things that have happened so you can know where we are. One is Russia, you know, when it was the Soviet Union, it uh, flew a red flag with a sickle and hammer on it. Okay. And Russia, when you're in Russia, every city has a plaza, like, like they do in Italy. Every city has a plaza, but the plazas in Russian cities are called Krasnya Ploshad, which means red square. None of them are square and none of them are red, but that's what they call it, Krasnya Ploshad, red square. Now, the Russians now will try to say Krasnaya Ploshad, which means beautiful square, not red square, right? The difference between Krasnaya and Krasnya, one is red, one is beautiful. So you see this idea of Krasnya Ploshad, red square. All right, well, what about the Soviet army? Well, the Soviet army was called Krasnya Armia, the red army, red army. So when the Russians took on, yeah, there you go. So she's put it in here. When the Russians took on the Germans in World War II, you have to remember that by the time the Russians had responded to the German advance, which by the way, came through Ukraine, if you get a chance to watch um, Roger Stone, is that his name? If you get a chance to watch Roger Stone, he does a he does a complete background, a fantastic job Dr. on Pitt. Ukraine and its history, right? Dr. Pitt. But, yeah. Have you seen it? It's Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, that's it, yeah. yeah he does, uh, uh, um, Ukraine is burning. Yeah, that's the name of it. That's the name of the video. And I it's, it's still, it was excellent. Yeah, it's still available on Rumble. It's still available on Rumble. You can get it. And anyway, it's a great background. It tells you the whole story. But so when, when Germany invaded, they, they made huge inroads. I mean, they got all the way to St. Petersburg. They got all the way to Kursk, Russia, all the way completely through Ukraine. And they got all the way to Stalingrad at the base of at the top of the Caspian Sea. And in each one of those battlegrounds, the Russians suffered massive casualties, about 5 million people in each, in each battle. And then the Russians turned the war. 
after they won at Stalingrad, after they won at Kursk, they turned the war and they began advancing the other direction. Well, when they took the Reichstag in Berlin, they got there before we did. When they took the Reichstag in Berlin, they put up a Soviet battle flag over the Reichstag. It was a red flag with a sickle and hammer, and it had certain battle writing on the flag. Okay, so you might say, well, look, Russia, after they became Russia, abandoned that Soviet flag and abandoned the Red Army diatribe and so forth. Now they fly under a flag that's red, white, and blue, believe it or not. It's red, white, and blue, the Russian Federation flag. They fly under the red, white, and blue banner. Well, that was true until about three days ago. And three days ago in Ukraine, they spotted, and there's been many videos released, of Russian battle tanks flying under the Soviet battle flag. In your previous podcast, you were talking about uh, China and John's vision having 200,000 men and how that matches up with prophecy. I listen to your podcast all the time. Um, The Ruach led me to your podcast, and they're very intriguing. Uh, Do you think it's possible that China and Russia will form together an alliance creating a singular red horse or red army? Yeah, they already have. That's already happened. Yeah, and the and in fact, all of that alliance and but but here I want to, let me make this point about the great sword, because the word there, great, is or sword is dagger, right? Dagger, and the Russian word for dagger is kinzai, and this is what this is what uh, uh, Shell put in the in the chat, and the kinzai missile is a hypersonic missile, it has a nine hundred mile range, and it flies at. Mach 6, so it's unstoppable. And it has a 75,000 or 75 kiloton uh, nuclear weapon on it. So that is uh, roughly six times more powerful than the bomb that went on it, went off in Hiroshima. Okay. <clears throat> so the scripture says that what? That they would take peace from the earth. Now, what this tells us is that this red army this red horse is going to take peace from the whole earth. Well, that is coming because what right now they're taking peace from Ukraine, but very soon they're going to take peace from the whole earth and that they should kill one another, that the whole world will be involved in war. And it was given unto him. <clears throat> See, he didn't invent it. It was given unto him. And you have to ask yourself the question, where did this hypersonic technology come from? How come Russia has this hypersonic technology and, and only the Chinese have it besides them? Which, by the way, the Russians gave to them. How did this happen? I don't know. It, according to scripture, it was given to them. Now, whether or not it was an intellectual concept that was given to them spiritually or was actually given to them by fallen watchers, we don't know. But it was given to them and it, they are given this mega dagger, right? a dagger that is capable of delivering megatons. So what we're going to see is, is that we see now that uh, where we are in, in scripture right now is we're coming into the red horse and we are about to come into the black horse, which is famine on the earth. We're very close to both of these things. And in the red horse, we see this Kinzai missile, 
you know, we talked about it last night. There are so many things we could do to de-escalate this situation. But right now we've crossed so many lines that are now, we can't cross back. We can't cross back. I mean, when we delisted Russia from the SWIFT system, this is something that we can't cross back over. And Russia has responded by saying, well, okay, then we're gonna shut down all of our exports. Now, some of you guys who have followed this closely know Russia controls 95% of the nickel in the world. That means there'll be no batteries come 2024, 2023. There'll be no batteries. So you can buy all the electric cars you want. There's not going to be a battery form at any cost. They're also cutting off all the ammonium nitrate, which means there's no fertilizer for Europe. There's no fertilizer for Middle East or Africa. It's gone. They've also cut off the natural gas and the price of oil. So Joe Biden has said Putin's price increases. Well, it's not Putin's price increases. <clears throat> when you say you can't buy any Russian oil or Russian gas, that also means you can't buy any Venezuelan oil or gas because all of that's owned by Russia. And so all of this stuff is cut off. So in Britain, they're paying, you know, they, they price fuel by the, uh, by, the, by the leader and they're paying, you know, a buck 60 or, or one pound 60 for a liter in Britain, which is about almost $12 a gallon for gas. Britain. And in California, they're paying eight something a gallon. And these prices are going to go nothing but higher. I mean, they're going to double from here. And the same thing with natural gas. Natural gas is priced right now at the equivalent of, if you're, if we're oil, it would be 466 a barrel. And in, so you, we know that Canada has plenty of oil and plenty of natural gas. We know Alaska has plenty of oil and plenty of natural gas. And we know that the continental United States has plenty of oil and natural gas. They will not open one speck of it, not one little bit. And so, so what we see here now is we see a planned program of decimation. And so many of these things we can look and say, well, gee, how come you know we as people can't figure our way out of it? Because it is the hand of Yah. He has given our leaders over to great deception that they might be damned. That's what it says in Second Thessalonians 2. And that's what he's done. Our leaders are given over to great deception. And that deception is leading us down into this path that is going to bring war on the whole earth. And when war comes on the whole earth, what's going to follow, whether or not there's war, is this famine that happens when the black horse rides. Now, the black horse is already riding. For instance, in the Middle East, where they are, 60 to 80% of their wheat comes from Russia. They know this. It's already been cut off. So all the people in the Middle East are hoarding flour and hoarding wheat. As quickly as they can get to the store to buy it, that's what they're doing. They're hoarding it and they're, and they're sequestering it. So the very same food shortages that caused the Arab Spring in 2009 are back on the table again, except it's 10 times worse than it, than it was, 10 times worse. And so, so what does it say here in, in Revelation 6, 6? And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a measure of wheat for a dinar, measure of wheat, right, for a dinar, and three measures of barley for a denarius. 
but see that you do not hurt the oil and the wine. So, and when we're talking about the oil and the wine, we're not talking about petroleum. We're talking about olive oil. So olive oil is still going to be plentiful. Wine's still going to be plentiful, but wheat and barley, no, not plentiful. And so in the midst of all this, we have, a, we have a bunch of people trying to tell you guys, here's what to believe. Putin's to blame, Putin's to blame, Putin's to blame. Well, you can play the blame game all you want. I'm interested in what are you going to do for a solution, right? What are you doing for a solution? And so anyway, trucking with preachers, so here's your answer when we talk about revelation. We are uh, well advanced into the, in, into the opening of the seals. And as we see where we are in the opening of the seals, where does this leave us as believers? And what are we called to? Well, we're called to fellowship among one another. Now, you know that we have been developing the, the telegram pages. So, and telegram communities, just to give you an example, here's the list of our telegram communities, right? And so we have telegram communities in almost, uh, well, in a number of states. And we have telegram communities in Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Australia, Brazil, Finland, Germany, Holland, Mexico, Poland, Pacific Asia, South Africa, the UK, and Zimbabwe. Now, Jessica Nock is going to be launching a program on Messianic Lamb uh, right after Shelley's program on Tuesdays that is designed to reach uh, into the UK. And so if you're not part of the UK fellowship, want to become part of the UK fellowship because there are many, 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 many believers in the UK. And even though the UK, I'll tell you, if you think it's difficult to get a group of Christians together in the United States, you got to see what it's like in Britain. <laughs> it's roughhouse. It's a roughhouse over there. But, is, it safe, is it safe to say that we're past the, This is a two-part question. I do apologize. The Ruach has put a lot on my heart to say, and I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, is it, that's all right. I'm going to uh, have Chris and John ask you some questions here in the next few minutes. <laughs> is it uh, safe to say that we are past the birthing pain situation? And what is the biblical take on the rapture? Because I've been on the fence about it ever since, you know, I learned more that it may not be what we're told. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I am uh, really opposed to the rapture doctrine. I know some of you might be rapture people, but I'm opposed to that doctrine. I believe it's extremely unhealthy for the believer uh, to hold on to that doctrine because you're being told by your pastor, you don't have anything to worry about. You know, you don't need to do a thing. You don't need to be in fellowship. You don't need to strengthen your faith. You don't need to be, you don't need to reform your behavior. You don't need just, you know, you guys are so filled with the Holy Spirit that you're going to be the ones that are going to be taken out of here before there's any trouble whatsoever. And you're going to sit on the mezzanine and one little, dropping one little tear for all of those who were left behind. Well, scripture says there are none good, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of Yah. So what makes this particular group of people, okay, what are you showing us there, Rob? I'm, I'm, I'm uh, unmute for a second, Rob. What are you showing us? In Joshua 4 and 5, it speaks of, men and women who walk, or men, uh, people, uh, that walk in the way of Yahuwah that get removed before destruction comes. And that happens every time Yah does destruction, yeah. destructive things. Yeah. Yeah. But when we're talking about being removed from the destruction, that does not necessarily mean being raptured. 
and I'll show you what, what I mean by that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like for instance, Rob, I'll tell you, I think you have been removed from the coming destruction where you are right now. Right. Yes. And, yeah. and I think it's the same thing with, I think it was the same thing with Chris, same thing with John. Well, there's been many of us who have been moved. We've been moved out of areas that are like, how about Felix and Melissa? You guys moved, right? You guys moved. Am I right about that? Did you, did you guys move? No, no. We're, we're just we're, we're uh it's still in southern california but we're in the mountains we're so in the near, mountains near lake arrowhead so yeah we okay were not we were actually contemplating we, we are but where where we're at it's it's pretty remote pretty oh. remote yeah yes. and i mean you know the, the the thing is the thing the idea of being inside of la or being inside of new york yeah we're i don't know i mean have you have you heard about what tesla is doing tesla is getting ready to hire a bunch of new people uh, to expand their academy of teaching, right? And they came out and said, we will not accept applications from anybody in California or New York. <laughs> what's, what's the matter, Elon? What's your problem? You know, but what we see is this, when we talk about the rapture doctrine, you know, when, when, when you talk about the idea of us being removed and putting the, you know, here's my problem, is that if you're sitting in a church and you have a preacher telling you, you've got absolutely nothing to worry about, you're not going to do any evangelism. You're not going to do any work. You're not going to. You're not going to take the time to engage in fellowship. You're not even going to engage in renewing of your mind. You're just going to go along doing what thou wilt until you're suddenly up in the mezzanine, right? What about all the people that are around us? For some people, I mean, for me, you know, I mean, I already made my pledge to God that I'm going to stay here and fight no matter what the circumstances are. Even if I could be out of here, there are lost to be reached, you know, and so. But when we talk about the idea, I think a lot of the teaching in First Thessalonians concerning this discusses the resurrection and not the rapture, right? The dead will rise first, right? But on the other hand, you have a prophecy that is taught in, in Revelation 12 when it says the woman with the child is taken up to heaven, right? The woman with the child is taken up to heaven. And where is the wilderness? I mean, these are all big questions. There's some people who are totally anti-second exodus and so forth. But I do agree with Rob Robinoff here in that Yah protects his people. And <clears throat> he can protect you even, even if you're in a big city, even if you're in the situs of destruction, he can still protect you. He can cover you. There were people who were in downtown Hiroshima when the bomb went off that walked out of it. No it's been, pla no it's been placed in a lot of people's spirits to either prepare, stock up on food, seeds, water, guns, ammo, things to hunt with, or as you have pointed out, move to other locations. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of preparing, you know, part of the preparing is not just stock up in your pantry, but to create a chain, a chain of supply. You know, you want to create chains of supply. You want to be in a situation where you know somebody who's got chickens where you can get eggs somebody who's raising cattle where you can get beef. I mean, you know, you want to, or, you know, some, if you're not a beef eater, you know, maybe you like to raise turkeys or something, but you know, you, you want to be in a place where you can have a chain of supply, not just stuff in your cabinet. And then the other thing is when we're talking about preparing yourself, I do believe that America is going to return to an agrarian society. In 1900, 90% of the people in the United States lived on a farm. That's where they lived. And 
we're going to return to that because this idea of us being a superpower blowing up civilians all over the world is going to come to a screeching halt because the world is not going to put up with it. And so when we do that, this is why when you're talking about preparing, you need to prepare yourself. Are you a farmer? Are you a star? Right. That's the question that was asked by um, uh, one of the Southern bands. I forget who, Wet Willie. You a farmer? You a star? Right. And so here's the thing is that we need to prepare ourselves as agrarian people. And the scripture is full of teaching as to how to do that. Very, very clear as to how to do that. And we could, and we could do that. And so these are all kinds of the kind of prep that we need to have. But recognize that in everyone's case, everybody who is here in this fellowship right here, Yah has you exactly where he wants you for such a time as this. And that's, that's just what the situation is. He has you exactly where he wants you for such a time as this. And so if you're in some place where you know you feel, well, I can't get out of here. Well, don't get out of there. Maybe God doesn't want you out of there. Maybe Yah wants you to testify from where you are. You know, when I think about it, I thought I woke up this morning thinking, you know what? It doesn't matter that I die or not. But if I am going to die, which I know is going to happen, I want to die for his namesake and not for some other reason. Exactly. You know, and that's it. So it doesn't matter if I'm here or I'm there or whatever, middle of a nuclear cloud, whatever. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that I die for his namesake. Exactly. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so with that, uh, thank you all to say we asked, we answered your question. <laughs> I have one model. Oh, you do? <laughs> yes, sir. Wait a minute. Have you taken up enough time already? <laughs> <laughs> no, somebody jumped in my time. Um, <laughs> a quick one. Um, me and my wife, we were talking last night regarding the elect and Kodashim. Um, what I understood about that um, from what we were talking last night was um, the Kodashim are the dedicated one that are grafted in by the Messiah our Yahusha, and the elect are those who have been selected before even the foundation of the herd right. and Shamayin was made. So mm. I was kind of like, okay, what if you are elect and you do not believe in the Messiah? What happens? Um, that was a bit uh, confusing last night. Oh, so yeah, that's a great conversation. And what happens is this. You're going to find... Yahweh is going to be all over you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can tell you, we were talking about it last night and Ricky was talking about, it. he said this friend of his, he was talking with this millionaire guy and this millionaire guy was kind of referring to, you know, the big man upstairs, the big man upstairs. And finally, this guy is overwhelmed by the Ruach and he just blurts out to the guy. Well, it's my prayer for you that you never get another night's sleep ever until you confess his name. And the guy just looked at him and went, what? He was shocked. And the guy who said it was shocked that he said it. This was a millionaire client of his, right? And he just unloads on this guy. What happens? That guy, he said, they went, he says, well, tell me more. So they went into their office and were talking. And he said, by the time the discussion was over, this guy and his wife, um, the guy who said it and his wife were on the floor bawling. 
because they just everything had changed in their life, just entirely everything. And it changed because he obeyed the Ruach when the Ruach commanded him to speak something that was totally uncomfortable that he couldn't possibly otherwise get out of his mouth, but it came out of his mouth nonetheless. Why? Because the other guy was an elect who was destined to find Yah. And Yah was going to find him no matter what. No matter what. That explains that. Thank you, Dr. Peter. Yeah, I, I think that's how it happens. Okay, thanks, Obi. <laughs> okay, okay hey, Felix, Melissa, so hey, glad to hear you guys are up in the mountains. Yes, yes. We, we've been really blessed to uh, find a, a local fellowship here of uh, believers, and we're, we're so grateful. And we, we are trying to work on that, uh, you know, getting a supply chain and other believers local here in the mountains, because uh, yeah. we are about 60, 70 miles from mm -hmm. L.A. Yeah. At, you know, like I said, we're in a really remote. remote community. It's, remote. it's uh, similar to anyway. Uh, I had two questions. One, I'm going to start with, well, you always say calendar questions are. <laughs> or, uh, what are you trying to do, get a hockey game going here? All right, go ahead. Um, so <laughs> in light of trying to prepare, you know, uh, we've been doing all kinds of things to try to prepare, uh, you know, some of which you've mentioned. Um, we were actually, we purchased a uh, some land that's contiguous to our property in hopes of uh, planting. However, uh, isn't this the year that we're not supposed to plant? I mean, I've heard several different variations, but I heard September of 21 to September 22, we're not supposed to plant. But I wanted to get your opinion because I know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, I haven't worked out the calculation yet. And maybe Brian can help us a little bit with this, but. <clears throat> the, as far as I can tell, there is a scriptural reference that I found for uh, both the Shemitah and the Jubilee year. And it's actually not given to the house of Israel. It's given to the Assyrians when they are coming in to attack the Northern kingdom. And it says, when you come in, you know, that year will be uh, a nothing for you. And the following year will be nothing for you. So that's a two year sequence. Okay. Uh, that would place the, the Jubilee year in 721 BC. Now I haven't calculated this out to tell us what the, what the Jubilee sequence is from there, but that is the only scriptural marker I can find in all of scripture. And of course I can't find it again right now, you know, but that's the only scriptural marker I can find that shows a two year pattern. Because remember in the Shemitah year, you know, the seven to sabbatical year is a better way to say it for us. Shemitah year. That year is the seventh year. And then you do seven sevens, and then there is a jubilee year that follows. So there is two years of no planting, right? Now, of course, the question of the sequence is whether or not it's a 49-year pattern or a 50-year pattern. Because when we look at it, <clears throat> one teaching is that you have you know, you do seven years, that's 49 years. And then the next year is the 50th year, right? Mm -hmm. But according to the teaching, the 50th year is the first year of the next seven year count, right? So it, other than the very first pattern of 50 years, every, every pattern after that would be a 49 year pattern, right? A 49 year pattern, not a 50 year pattern. 
Now, there's some thinking in uh, in the calendar. When you look at the calendar, you can also tend to justify the calendar that way if you go through and you plot out the first 22 days of the first month, go the first 22 days of the first month, and then there are seven patterns of 49 days after that that complete the calendar. It's another way to look at it. And again, all of these things are kind of... Um, numerical right but for the time being i do not believe that 2122 is a shemitah or a jubilee year okay my calendar reckoning has the jubilee has the shemitah year 2024 so, because you know we follow you but when our some of the people in our fellowship were saying it's it's 22. Yeah. yeah, your fellow. Well, your fellowship is kind of on point on that, and you know, and this is your fellowship, you know. So when it comes to the calendar again, you know, it's very possible for us to beat each other up over this all day long. Yes, yes, but yes. we don't want to be out of. Um, yeah, we don't want to be step at the fellowship. Yeah, either. Right. Yeah. Well, well I mean, you know, the most important is with yeah. yeah we, we don't want to. We don't want to offend, and I, I mean, we. But obviously, <laughs> we feel very pressed to prepare. Like yes. a lot of people here. Yes. Um, yeah. Your understanding, though, it's 24. Yeah. Well, 24. that's my understanding. But again, you know, I, I I haven't done a reconciliation in a long time because I've been swamped doing other things, but I am going to go back through it. We are reforming the Yom Kodesh now. And uh, so uh, Amy is helping us with that uh, in Montana. And so we are going to be publishing a new Yom Kodesh, just like we're going to be publishing a new lexicon that Eileen has been working on. It's going to be absolutely fabulous vastly expanded really fabulous but um but the thing is is that when uh, when we talk about these things you know again you know for the time being you're going to need to trust in yah and what yah is telling you to do right yeah. because i can tell you i was going to plant last year and yah had other plans for me because it, yeah. right? it didn't happen i mean the first time we've actually even been in a position to do Yes. That. So yes. that's why we were asking. Um, yeah. Oh, and, second... and wait, but the other thing also is that just like, you know, concerning you in the, with uh, you and our fellowship, we learn a whole lot more from you. <laughs> well, and we're closer to, you know. But we're, we're... That's okay. I mean, the, the idea is to love one another in brotherhood and in fellowship and, and to take care of one another. I mean, you guys can disagree about a whole ton of stuff, yeah. right? Reasonable yeah. minds can disagree about a whole ton of stuff. Okay, fine. Yeah. You've got disagreement. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't care for one another. It doesn't mean you shouldn't look out for one another. Uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be there when stuff happens, you know, because you know what you know when you're out, when you're out of the city, you're not on city water, you're not on city sewer. You know, you're gonna have septic issues, you're gonna have well issues, you're gonna have power issues, you're gonna have plow the driveway issues, you know. I mean, there's all that stuff is gonna be on the is gonna be on the ticket. And when it's there, where are your friends, right? Exactly. And, 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 and for the most part, a lot of that is a, just, just a knowledge database, right? Knowledge database really helps. Um, the, the second thing I wanted to ask you is, um, this, I, I hope uh, I'm not offending anybody or anything. I, I, this is just a question because we, we heard a teaching last night and I, it was a different perspective on Esther that unsettled me. And, you know, the time right now, we're getting ready for Purim and all that. And I, I just thought, I wanted to ask this. Um, 
So the teaching, the premise of the teaching was that Esther was not a historical book. It wasn't, wasn't um, all, it have to be just historical. Uh, rather as in uh, this person, this uh, pastor had, was more of an allegory. Uh, where the characters were representations of different things. So, for example, yeah, so what you need to do from here is get, you know, call that guy up, get a group, a team of 20 people, right. and invade most of your local churches with a razor blade and cut that book out of their Bible, right? Yeah, that, you can't that, do that, you can always burn it, right? I mean, look, yeah, I've, I've heard it's historically, you know. I believe it's historical. I know. It well, was, I mean, the thing is, everybody said, well, you can't count Esther because it wasn't found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But guess what? They found a copy in the Dead Sea Scrolls recently. Well, okay, so that kind of negates that argument. Now, in addition, you know, in the Sefer, we have the book called Hadassah, which was traditionally labeled additions to Esther, but it's not. The Esther that most Bibles have is a redacted form of Esther that was redacted in order to make it palatable to the Aramaic speaking people and the, and the Persians. So it would be a you know cross-cultural hit. The long version does have the prayer of Yahweh and you can't sit here and tell me, oh, these, they invented this stuff. They invented the stuff that starts telling you all of these critical details that were left out, like about who Haman was and, you know, and all these other situations. No, I, I don't think so. Hadassah is the book. Hadassah is the book. Esther is not. Hadassah does appear to be inspired script because it does have the name of Yahweh in, inside the book. And so for somebody to say, well, I found out, you know, I, I found out by watching the video that there was no Esther found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that thing, all that is just about Jewish retribution. Well, look, after reading the book of Judges, you know, on Thursday night, when you talk about, you know, scripture is full of sin, warts and all. And you can't sit here and say, well, the scriptural teaching is that if somebody is accused of rape, you go kill the whole city. I mean, you could, you, you know, if you're a, you're going to take the Quran approach, oh, well, that's what they did. So that's what we're going to do. Somebody was accused of rape over there in, uh, uh, in uh, San Luis Obispo. Let's go burn the whole town down and kill everybody there. Right? No. The scripture is, like somebody wrote me, a friend of mine wrote me, and he said, what about this passage in Maccabees that says, Judas Maccabeus is praying for the dead? Well, that's what Judas Maccabeus did. That doesn't say that that's doctrine. That's what Judas Maccabeus did. For Ezra says, forget it. When they're dead, there's no more praying for them. Because it's finished. It's done. Right? So just because Judas Maccabeus got it wrong, you know, Torah says, no necromancing, no calling to the dead. Then you get to Shaul, and there he is going to a witch to summon up Samuel to Samuel. You know, get Samuel out here. And who was where was Samuel? Samuel is in that profound quiet, protected by the angels that is promised to us in four Ezra. And here comes Shaul. Knock, knock, knock. Wake up, right? And when he wakes up, Samuel, a an egregious sin. This is why there is no necromancy, because you're not supposed to be talking to. The dead who are peacefully asleep, leave them alone and stop talking to them. But he he wakes up Shemuel. What does Shemuel say? Your your history is like you're done, you're over, right? You're now a footnote. Boom, it's finished for you. 
And so, uh, so at any rate, but does this mean because Samuel went to a necromancer that we should go to, to a necromancer? No, that's what Saul, that's what Shaul did. That's not what we're called to do. Just because David had an affair with Bathsheba, does that mean every king should have an affair with his next door neighbor? No, you just have, you have the scripture there that's full of warts and all, right? So we have a ton of ugliness in the Old Testament. I mean, a ton. Yes, and the best thing, well, the wise person learns from not only your own mistakes, but when learning from other people's mistakes, not what not to do. Well, I think that's what the whole Old Testament is about. You have these people that were chosen by Yah, and he said, follow my instruction, I will bless you. Don't follow my instruction, I will curse you. They did not follow the instruction. He kicked them both out to their destruction. That's what you see in the Old Testament. So it's very much learn from this example. Learn from this, right? And then in the New Testament, the doctrine of forgiveness is made known for the first time. Not for the first time. Actually, it appears in uh, in 4 Ezra. Because in 4 Ezra, in, in chapter 7, he says, Ezra's talking to Yah, and he says, if you were not merciful, none of us would survive. None of us would survive. How did we get to this point of the Apophrica being removed and I know a lot of modern day preachers have a very bland standpoint of if God or Yah wanted the Apophrica in there, Enoch, it would be in there. And that's usually their standpoint of that it's, it's heresy. Like, how did we get from the original Bible to 66 books and there's stuff still missing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I have to tell you, when we were going through Ezra last night, we've been reading for Ezra now cover to cover at our fellowship. And as we're reading it, I mean, it's just passage after passage that Mashiach is quoting. You know, I mean, it's just like the parable of the seed, right? The parable of the seed shows right up there in Ezra 7. The I, I, How I long to gather you like chicks under my wings. That's from uh, for Ezra chapter 1. I mean, it's just there's one reference after another. I mean, the foundation for so much of what is taught by Mashiach himself comes right out of for Ezra. Well, when you see that, I mean, how do you how do you exclude that from your text? And then when you see Enoch, well, we can't have Enoch because Enoch is heresy. Yet Jude quotes from Enoch. And there are 56 references in the New Testament to the book of Enoch, including the use of the term elect, the term elect, right? In fact, one of the things we found in the Gospel of Luke was that at the transfiguration, in the traditional writing is, this is my son, hear him. But we're reading along and there's this extra Greek word, electromenos or something like this. I don't remember the exact word. And we're looking at that. I looked it up and it's like, oh, guess what this says? This is my son, the elect one. Hear him. Well, the use of the phrase, the elect one, is a direct reference to the book of Enoch. So what happened? Well, you had several things happening. First of all, Enoch is an extremely difficult book. Uh, especially for people in the dark ages or, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the literacy and the technology not being here. For us, we see these things now when Enoch starts talking about the heavens and what he's seeing. We've seen them ourselves, right? And so now, and if you look at the book of Enoch, it tells you point blank, this is written for the people of the latter day. That's what it says in chapter one. This book written for the people in the latter day. So Enoch was never intended to 
to be read, you know, during this 2000 year period. And so as much as they tried to destroy it, they burned every copy they could find. They tried to destroy it, tried to destroy it. The Ethiopian church always had it as its canon. It was canonized in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found five copies of it. And so it has always been considered a major text. For Ezra has always been considered a major text. And so as much as the world has tried to destroy these things, they couldn't. They tried, but they couldn't. Now, when you talk about the Apocrypha, this is where I get into it with I get into it with the church leaders all the time. I got into it with Chuck Missler. You know, Chuck Missler used to run the 6640 radio show. 66 books, 40 authors. You know. And Sorry, so I can add, I jump in? Well, why not? Sorry, I've got a book right in front of me. And I want to encourage everybody. Queen Elizabeth actually printed a hundred thousand copies of the apocrypha and the date it says um one right it was dated on the 20th day of may 1954 the apocrypha has never gone preachers pastors have been deceived by hasatan Amen. The Apocrypha has never left us. And this was um, May 19, May 1954. So we have had the Apocrypha Bible printed and printed and printed right throughout the centuries to modern day. And yeah. it's going to be done again. Praise well, you know, yeah, praise yeah, absolutely, Catherine. You know, what's interesting about that is that in Do you want Britain, to see the license? Do people want to see the license quick? Well, you could, uh, sure, yeah, put it up to the screen. Let's see it, if you can do it. Oh, hold on. I, I don't know. I can't. I don't know how to do it. Can you see it? Uh, well, a little closer. A little closer. I'm not yeah. very good at this. Okay, all right. Well, that's that's good. That's good, Catherine. We'll take your word for it. You know, the thing that's interesting about this is that Britain has always readily accepted the Apocrypha, although uh, when we look at what happened that eliminated the Apocrypha, there were two things that happened, three things that happened. One was the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession followed the rise of Scottish Rite Masonry, and the, Scot the Scottish Masons wanted to sequester the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Sirach into their own literature and did not want to share it. So they lobbied with the Protestants in London to adopt the Westminster Confession, which was a political confession, not a theological confession. And this political confession limited the text to 66 books. However, you have to remember that the 1537 Coverdale, which I have a copy, had the Apocrypha. The 1560 Geneva had the Apocrypha. The Catholic Bible has always had the Apocrypha. The 1611 KJV authorized version had the Apocrypha. The 1789 Benjamin Blaney version of the KJV had the Apocrypha. The 1840 Brown Bible in Britain had the Apocrypha. The 1910 E.W. Bullinger had the Apocrypha. And now we see with Catherine's testimony here that in 1954, Queen Elizabeth republished 
the Apocrypha, the Oxford uh, authorized version of the text, the Oxford English uh, Bible has the Apocrypha. Okay. So the Apocrypha was eliminated. And now when you get into the mid 1800s, two fraudsters, and I'm going to call them that right here, fraudsters. People don't want to hear this, but it's the truth. Westcott and Hort, they were not believers. They were fraudsters. And they compiled the text. There were two university professors at Cambridge. And they compiled the text, predicated, the Old Testament was predicated on the Codex Vaticanus, which the Catholic Church readily admits to corrupting to suit their ideology. And the New Testament was predicated on the Codex Sinaiticus, that a German explorer who a wannabe archaeologist claimed was the oldest text in the world, his name was Tishburn, when he produced the text and said, this is the oldest text of the New Testament in the world, the Codex Sinaiticus, a fellow named Constantine Simonides began publishing in the Manchester Guardian for three years in a row. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it. It was a poor job. I was writing it for the czar. And that's why I threw it in the trash. And that's why the monks were pulling the pages to start fires with at the monastery, the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, all the Bibles that are being used in the United States, the NIB, the ESV, the ASB, the NASB, all of those, the, the NKJV, they're all based on the Codex Sinaiticus. That's something for you guys to know. And the Codex Sinaiticus has 80 substantive omissions concerning the deity of Mashiach in its text. Okay? So when your pastor is standing there telling you, the NIV is the inerrant word of God, and the, or the ESV is the inerrant word of God. They're using a text that was based on one, a corrupted Old Testament, and a forged New Testament. I think the most common one I've heard is that uh, they claim the King James Version is the author, authoritative word of God. Author, I can't pronounce it. Yeah, authoritative. Yeah, well, you know what they say. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, right? That's a joke, right? Right. Paul well, died sixteen hundred years before, right? Just to give a just to give a little, and I don't mean to take up a lot of time. Just to give a little back a backstory of me. The majority of my life, I was a Satanist. I was um, serving the devil proudfully, and I the one thing, and I can tell you that's honest was it was all because I thought y'all hated me. He hated my sin. He hated everything I did. Sure, but I didn't think he wanted to save me and so there was a man that y'all used named jerry johnson who led me to christ and all it took or mashiach and all it took was love it took him being kind but he is one of those people that believe king james is it my brother showed me enoch when i was 19 i'm 26 now and i knew there was something more missing when the ruach led me to the sefer there i I feel some type of anointing to it and I just can't oh, help you. but discover more and more and more. And there was a prophet friend of mine who's anointed by God, who looked at your picture and they go, Mr. Pigeon's a very blessed man. Well, that I'm, th I'm thankful. Somebody didn't look at my picture and say, geez, you know, somebody <laughs> please cover that guy up. There's a reason why we made masks mandatory where he lives, you know, but you know, I'll tell you what, that is, you know, that, that's a great word, what you're saying there, you know, about these books. Now, here's the thing with the KJB. 
lot of people want to look to the KJV because the KJV was essentially based on uh, the Masoretic Hebrew and uh, the uh, what's called the Stephanus Textus Receptus, which the, the Stephanus Textus Receptus is the most reliable Greek form of the New Testament we know of, not the Codex Sinaiticus. And it was predicated on literally 20,000 texts that they found out of Constantinople when, the, when they built the, the Stephanus Textus Receptus, not one witness, but 20,000 witnesses. So you can see why people lean on the KJV, but if they understood the KJV only crowd, number one, they're not KJV AV. They're talking about this Scrivener Bible that came out in the 1880s. So they're reading a 66 book version in paragraphs, none of which were authorized by King James. None of it, none of that. And instead of reading the original KJV and the cage of the original KJV, you got to remember they were way late to the table. What happened was you had Henry VIII breaking away from the Pope. When Henry VIII was breaking away from the Pope, and it's the exact same thing we have going on in Europe right now. You had this thing called Brexit in England, where England pulled out of the EU because they did not want to be under the Pope and the Third Reich. And it, it was the exact, this has been the, the, this cause, this is a, a cause celeb that has gone on since the very first century in this period between Britain and Rome. And so you see Britain trying to pull away. Well, Henry VIII said, the Pope's not going to rule what goes on in my country. And so he kicked him out. And so when we're doing something else, well, as soon as he did, Tyndale comes in and says, well, here, let me give you the Bible in English, which was considered a vulgar and profane and pagan language. But he did nonetheless. And when he did, they burned it. When he got to Europe, they burned him at the stake for doing so. If he had stayed in Britain, he would have been burned. But one of his collaborators was Coverdale. Okay. And Coverdale produced really the, because when Tyndale wrote, he didn't spell the same word the same way twice, right? They were always, every single word was misspelled a different direction. Coverdale is the one who finally reformed the English language into a consistently spelled set of words. So Coverdale comes out in 1537 with the Coverdale scripture. Now, guess what? It includes the Apocrypha. And when Coverdale publishes this work, by the way, I agree with his translation in English more than any other English translation of Coverdale's work. When Coverdale produced his scripture, he ended up going to work for John Calvin. So he left and went to work with Calvin in Geneva, and they developed what would become the Geneva Bible by 1560. But the Geneva Bible was 95% Coverdale. Coverdale's previous work ended up in John Calvin's hands. And the difference was John Calvin wanted to come in and say, the Pope's the Antichrist, which he did repeatedly in footnotes. Well, this Bible becomes extremely popular. And by the way, it included the Apocrypha. This Bible becomes extremely popular in Europe or in Britain, particularly in Scotland, it becomes the dominant script. Well, this is where Yames is. Yames VI is the king in Edinburgh, Yames VI who becomes Yames I, or King James, we call him. Yames I, he becomes Yames I in, in uh, England. Scottish king becomes the king of England. And when he does, he decides, well, we're going to replace the, the, this Bible that's so popular, this John Calvin 1560 Geneva, 
with our official text. Okay, now just hold on just one second, guys. You brought this up, hold on. Okay, brothers and sisters, what you're seeing here, this is a facsimile restoration of the 1611 KJV, okay? Wow. <laughs> that looks like it has a lot taken away from it to get our little book they have in modern churches. <laughs> yeah. Now, this book here is a, uh, it's a complete facsimile reproduction, that is to say, it's exactly the size that it was when it was published. And you can see how big it is, right? Put your head on my shoulder, right? Yeah, okay, now let's open it up. You see, now in here, there's no Jesus. There's Jesus. Okay. There's Jesus. Okay. But it doesn't, I don't have to go far here until we come to, oh, look at this. Here's one Esdras. Let's see if I can get that up where you guys can see it. Where's my pallet jack? <laughs> oh. Don't hurt yourself, Brother P. You need a spot, Brother Pete? <laughs> now, you yes. <laughs> you need a carjack for that thing. Yeah, no kidding. Apocrypha, one Esdras, right? And if I flip the page, we'll get right into two Esdras, two Esdras and the Apocrypha right here in the 1611 KJV. So when your friends are telling you, well, I'm KJV only. No, you're not. You absolutely are not. You are Scrivener Bible only with your paragraphs and your redaction and your 66 book version that, and, and, and using the term Jesus. That's Scrivener. That's not KJV. If you were KJV only, you'd be using E.A. They're not. And so most of the time they've been told because they read that opening preface to the KJV and then, then this becomes their entire source of structure. But the KJV itself was 95% Geneva Bible. 95% of it was taken from the Geneva and the Geneva, 95% of it was taken from the Coverdale. Hmm. Well, it's like as time goes on, more and more is taken away from the King James and it just becomes nothing. Yeah. Well, now they want to have a politically corrected, politically neutral, a neutralized. We need to have a neutered form. We need the neutered form of the Bible that's gay friendly. Uh, and so. Yeah, you know, yeah they came out. They came out with the Queen James Bible. It's got to be yeah, the Queen one. James Bible. You know, you got to have that, you know, and if, you know. And, you know, on and on and on it goes, you know, and we're not with this is part of the reason we got into the Sefer because we're sitting there in a Bible study and we're reading. Oh, yeah, we're going to create a neutralized, politically neutral, politically more friendly, uh, groovy Bible. 
because people don't understand euphemism that says when you talk about mankind, you mean all of mankind, men and women. Well, why can't it say a woman like that one pastor finished his prayer? You know, a man and a woman. It just boggles the mind. It boggles the mind, you know? And so at any rate, uh, with this, um, being able to look at the historical record, looking at the historical record and get an idea what the historical record is, you find out somebody ain't telling you the whole story. Somebody's not telling you the whole story. And when you get the whole story, there's nothing wrong with the cage. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's lots of problems in the KJV, but there's fewer problems in the KJV than there is in the NIV or the NKJV or the ESV. A lot fewer problems. And, you know, so, but there were big mistakes that were made by the KJV interpreters. All right. Like, there's some things, I mean, I can see when we go through and we look at it, we go, well, look, that's a pretty good term there that they used, English term for the Hebrew. But there's a better term. Like instead of you shall keep my Sabbath, in the Sefer it says you shall guard my Shabbat, right? We thought that was a little bit better word than keep. Now, so you get into these kind of distinguishing things. Yeah, it's accurate, but it's not as accurate as it could be. But when you get into the New Testament and you have the change up of the word sabbaton to first day of the week in seven places, no, that wasn't an accident. That was capitulation to Roman authority when they added the word Easter and the King James identifies Elijah in one place as Eli Zeus, Eli Zeus. Right? Brother Pete? Yeah. Uh, could you say that, that's, that, that that word that they're putting out is red horse influenced? Oh. You know, there, is, there, were, there were definitely some influences happening there, Rob. I'll tell you. I mean, when, when I look at it now, you know, okay, Henry VIII, I think Henry VIII wanted to do the right thing in terms of breaking from Rome but he didn't break the leather collar. When you retain Sunday as your day of worship, you're still attached to Rome. You're attached to Rome. Yeah. And and instead of having, instead of having the true Shabbat. So what we see is is that, uh, is that even though the, and, and when the pilgrims came to the United States, they came here to break away from the Protestant, the Anglican form of Protestantism in, in Britain because they didn't think it was accurate enough, right? But they didn't get it right either. And so you see, I mean, you go into these churches and you have the pastor standing up there railing against the Roman church while they're meeting on Sunday. You think Rome cares? You can sit here and denounce us all day long, but guess what, guys? You're meeting on Sunday. End of discussion. Nothing more to talk about. We've got you. We own you. And so, if, you know, part of the being set free is being set free on the calendar. Part of the being set free is the keeping of Shabbat, right? The Shabbat is the symbol of the free man. And uh, so that's where we are. And, you know, and even as difficult as it may be to be the free man, and believe me, we're going to be oppressed more and more. That is the symbol of the free man. And the fact that Catherine brings up that Elizabeth uh, II here had published uh, the Apocrypha 
tells you that she knew. Now, when I got into it with, with uh, Chuck Missler, I asked his man, Gary McDonald, I said, uh, hey, so who, in your opinion, uh, canonized 66 books? Now, I already knew the answer. Because, you know, when you say somebody canonized something, canon means Roman statue. It doesn't mean Greek statue. It doesn't mean Essene statue. It doesn't mean Egyptian statue. It doesn't mean Anglican statue. Means what did the Romans do? And when did the Romans canonize 66 books? Well, he couldn't answer the question. Uh, 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 uh. Well, here, let me answer the question. There was only one canonization that ever took place in the Roman church. It was the Council of Trent in 1532, and they canonized the Apocrypha as well. They called it the Deuterocanon. And that's why it's published in every Catholic Bible, the Deuterocanon. So never, ever was only 66 books canonized. Now, when you're talking about, well, what was the use? And people come to me, are you trying to say that Enoch has inspired scripture? Well, before I answer that, I want you to tell me how Philemon is inspired scripture. Oh, you know, I'm asking for a friend. I'll take the answer offline. <laughs> right? Is it uh, uh, one of the one of the arguments my buddy ran into? Because he, I just got him. He bought his suffer. He got the tabs and everything. Uh, he said he tried showing it to a self-professed minister, and the dude's argument was: um, there's a verse in Wisdom of Solomon that says it's better virtue to be alone and not have kids, but Gen, uh, Genesis says is be fruitful and multiply. He's like, that's a contradiction. What would your take be on, you know, it's a very poor cross comparison, but what would be your take on that? Like my take is, is that, it. is that all of those, sorry, sorry, all of those, sorry, all those Catholic yeah. bishops that were at the council of Trent need to be burned at the stake. No, you know, my, my take on it is this. When people say, well, there's no contradiction in scripture. You know, we know we have the NIV. There's no contradiction in scripture. Okay, well, hold on. Doesn't it read in one section of the New Testament that Judas hung himself, but in another section of scripture, his guts fell out in Potter's Field? One gospel tells us that there was one guy who was possessed by demons, and those demons were cast into the pigs. But another gospel tells us there were two guys. Now, and if you want to talk about the ultimate contradiction... Let's get to it. So you want to talk about contradictions. Okay. Sorry, Doc. Can, I, can I just let's, continue? Wait a minute. What, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. No, I, I just want to say that um, I, I know uh, the, the questions are great. However, there are 10 guys here with their hands up. They've been waiting right. quite a long time. So, so uh, I'll tell you what. And let's, and let's actually do that. Before I answer this question, Chris, let's go to the other people who have waited a long time to get some of their questions answered okay can we do that let's do that okay so let's start let's go to, i'm gonna go bethany then chris then rob okay okay hey bethany what's up uh, we're almost there it. there you go yeah um yes uh shabbat shalom dr pigeon um shabbat shalom. yeah and i know you may not have wanted to hear this, but um, I have been, it's been bugging my mind and I just had to 
clear it off because since Thursday, I haven't been myself. And it's not good for me because I have this issue uh, with the arrhythmia. So it keeps bothering me. So I had to tell you and get this thing off my chest. Um, so it, frankly, I'm very keen on whatever you teach and I'm, and I've learned a lot since perhaps 2018, uh, when I first um, listened to you on Steven and uh, Yana's channel, and, and then on um, Now You See TV, then again on uh, the um, YouTube channel that led me to listen to you on Jessica's channel. And so here I am still following you like an old faithful. Uh, but there's something that hurt me very much. And, I'm, and that was last Thursday. You know, I'm never, I never accuse anyone. I'm never blasphemous. But what I did was not even, was not even about you. It was just something that I saw on the screen that was hurting, upsetting me, actually not upsetting, but let's say making me uneasy. So um, uh, the thing is that um, I want to thank you actually for all that I've learned, you know, especially the name of Ya. That was very important to me. I learned the correct name. And the four letters, Yodhe Vavhe, I literally um, looked into it, researched so much, and I found some amazing, amazing things about it. But I won't get into it now. So um, anyway, uh, I have met a few on um, um, the YouTube channel that have been extremely what I would call, and I I'm sure I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm, I'm, I'm very hurt, and I'm going to say it that what I would call them as very uncultured and obnoxious, who are ready to strike for simple reasons. This is about last Thursday's um, teaching. So um, you were you were talking about Belial, and the image you had on the screen was very kind of dis disturbing uh, to a few. Um, and this is really not about you. It's all about like what, what I was seeing or what the others were seeing, they didn't like. And so um, I have, I've written down whatever I wanted to say, so I would be fast with this. So you're, you're talking about Belial and, um, and the image you had put on the screen was disturbing to, to a few, including me, because it was demonic. And because it was nighttime, I had a demonic problem. I'll talk about it later on. So I responded to a lady named Kawa, and she agreed with me that I was, uh, I too was feeling uh, uneasy looking at the screen because of that image. To that, a woman abruptly re responded, um, saying, This is biblical, and if you don't like watching it, you can leave. A couple of others joined in with her. This nonsense of undue authority over others has to stop. This is not the way of Torah followers. It is also a great disturbance to many like me who have health issues. So it has disturbed me. I have, the, I have arrhythmia and 
little things can upset me. And it's, it's been since Thursday that uh, I can explain what is really happening, but it's something happen, is happening in my body. And well, if I, can, if I can respond to what you've said so far, Bethany, let me say this. Yeah, when I think about the image that I used for that particular PowerPoint, that image was pretty disturbing. It disturbed everybody in our household when we used it too, when they saw it. Um, the reason I used the image is because of what I was reading about in the Sons of Belial when I looked at what the meaning was, right? That it was literally, you know, evil rising. And, and I apologize too. I mean, you know, look, I would like to pretend that I, you know, I'm beyond having emotions in these things, right? But I'm not beyond having emotions in these things. And quite frankly, when I look what's coming on the world, you know, there's not a day that goes by that the evil doesn't increase, right? And it's not like it's a little bit of evil over there. It's swamped the whole world. It's like the septic tank has overflowed over the whole world. And yeah. it's not like it's abating at all. It's now, you know, it's no longer waist deep. It's right up here to the chin and it's about to come over our head. And it's like, there's nothing we can do. We have liars screaming at us all day long, telling us we have to regurgitate the lie. Well, quite frankly, one pervert after another is leaving the, leading the world. And, and we have to sit here and just tolerate it. And when I got to thinking about the quality of that evil and the quality of the evil that took place under the sons of Belial, it was that evil. They were that evil. Look at the death that came upon the, the, the whole of the house of Israel as a result of the evil that was perpetrated in that city. And that evil that was done there did not get properly punished. And you look at because you're home. And the children of that generation are the ones leading us today. That's who our leadership is today. That's who they are. Now, I understand what you're saying about you being abused in the chat. Because you know my feeling on it is what? We've talked about it many times here. Reasonable minds can disagree, right? Reasonable minds can disagree. And sometimes when you're talking about reasonable minds can disagree, sometimes that gets ugly. You know, it's like, I don't like your opinion. I think your opinion sucks. But as Noah Webster once said, I may disagree with every word that comes out of your mouth, but I would fight to the death for your right to say it. So this is something that we're going to have to address that we need to, you know, it's kind of a reform because Quite frankly, Bethany, there are many, many trolls that have been, you know, that, that get into the chat or that even have gone and come into this fellowship and they want to destroy the fellowship and they come yeah. in with, with all kinds of stuff coming out. And so our people that are running, you know, the administrators, yeah. they're trying to make sure that that kind of stuff doesn't erupt. Like, for instance, it's not uncommon for me to be doing the teaching. And somebody decides, well, this is their opportunity to do their teaching. And so they start every other thing in the chat is in all caps, which is screaming. And they're screaming 
you know, their doctrine over the top of the teaching. And so the people who are trying to participate in chat and reference what's going on, they're not. Instead, somebody's over here in the chat room screaming, and they're screaming their doctrine. Well, if you want, if you've got your own doctrine, like I'll give you an example. I did the uh, the presentation I did before Sons of Belial. Um, I did a presentation that was done on um, I forget what it was, but this guy from the a black Hebrew uh, Hebrew Israelites. Gog and Gog and Gog Gog and Magog. Yeah, Gog and Magog. He comes in and he he starts responding to every comment with the same thing. He puts in 59 comments on the page with the same thing. You guys are you guys are all burning in hell, you know, over and over and over again. And, you know, so we try to administrate that as best we can. But I do appreciate and I'm sorry that you're I really am sorry that you that you have experienced two things. One, that you experienced an adverse reaction to the image. And I will try to be more conscious about the images I use so as to not quite be so draconian, you know, in making the point. And uh, and I apologize about what happened to you in the chat, okay? That we do have to have, we do have to take the time to think about what's being said and recognize that I can handle a lot of abuse, okay? I used to be a trial lawyer, believe me, it gets abusive. I know. I know, but, but, I can, but, but I do appreciate our administrators too. They do hard work and they have to make hard decisions, you know, and, and so they want to make sure that we're not getting trolled out. Uh, but, you know, it is a fine balance line and it's good thing. It's a very good thing for you to raise that point here this morning. Okay. I brought that up because um, um, I just had to get it off my chest and I had a problem. I just want to mention that quickly so that the next one can take over. And, um, um, you know, I have, I have a lot of books like these. And there was a time I went to, this is a teaching uh, DVD. And I thought, okay, I, I finished all my work. Now I might as well, because I don't waste my time at all. As soon as I have time, I go to my study and research. So I started doing, um, watching this. And there was a lot of uh, teaching on the demons and things. And by the time it was already 8.30 in the night, and I thought, oh my gosh, no, this is making me sick. So I might as well forget about it. So, about, so I said my prayers and I went to sleep. And as soon as I fell asleep, I had this thing, something, pulling my hair, pulling my hands, pulling, all at the same time. And I thought, this is just, just a bad dream. So I woke, I suddenly woke up. And then I fell off to sleep again. And the same thing happened. And this time my heart was pounding like crazy. I woke up, I couldn't even breathe properly. I had a little sip of water. I took my hot on tincture and then I anointed myself with anointing. Was this Thursday night? Was this Thursday night? Um, no, this was before. This was before. Okay. Um, I'm talking about when I was watching this DVD. Um, so because of that, you know, I uh, connected uh, that with with what I was watching on uh, on Thursday. So I, I mean, I got reminded of uh, of what happened, and so I was a little uneasy. I thought, I hope that doesn't happen to me again. And so I have my um, anointing oil, like uh, you know, from Jerusalem, like this. So I used the anointing oil, and I anointed my heart, my head, my hands, my feet, and so on, and I. 
I said the Shema. I always say the Shema. I, I know a lot of Hebrew prayers, so I said the Shema, and I went to sleep. And then I got proper sleep. But when I woke up, it was very little sleep that I had got. So when I woke up, the whole day was like I was like I had a hangover. But um, but then after that, I was okay. That next night, I got I really prayed a lot, anointed myself, and I thought I'm not going to sleep without anointing myself. So I anointed myself and I went to sleep, and I was okay since then. But Again, you know, I want to bring up, this, bring this up about Thursday. It's not your fault. It's it's just something that made me uneasy. It made uh, uh, some of the um, three or four of them uneasy, and that's all I wanted to say. And I mean, and and that's what I just wrote, and I got that blasting on me. So I didn't. I had to switch off. I haven't watched the whole thing, but I'm going to watch it during the day. Say my prayer and then watch it. Because I always, whenever I'm, even I'm reading something, I have this book now. It's about about um, Saturn, and Satan is connected to Saturn, and there's a lot about it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to pray about it and read it. So I always do that. Well, Bethany, again, I mean, you know, I'm sorry for putting an upsetting image on there. I mean, I should have been. I guess I should have been a little more careful about that in thinking my way through it uh, in terms of what I was going to put up for the image. You know, I could have used that Sherlock Holmes character for the whole image. I could have used that because it's a crime scene investigation. You know, the, the problem is, is that that particular passage in scripture, there was somebody else on the, on the, um, in the dialogue too, that was totally upset about the fact pattern that was being given because the fact pattern brought back a lot of bad memories. And, um, you know, and in those circumstances, it's very difficult to deal with because there was an explosive emotional issue to go through those facts again, right? And when you're actually taking them in, it's explosive and it's hard to deal with. But but I'll just say this, that, you know, I'll try to be a little bit more thoughtful about that kind of thing. And, and our administrators who are present here today on this particular show, I'm sure have heard your, have heard your words, okay? So thank you, Bethany, for giving us this kind of feedback, okay? It's very welcome. Thank okay. you very much because I've learned so much from you and and really I appreciate so you know so much you're doing and you never ask for donations. Everything belongs to you. All the, the websites, the webinars, everything belongs to you. And yet you're just teaching us, taking your own time. Time is so precious. And you're taking your time to teach us. I do appreciate it very much. Well, thank thank you. you. Well, thank you, sister. And be blessed. Okay. And may may all the demons be forced out of your life entirely. May, may they be forever blocked out of your household and not allowed in there at all whatsoever under any circumstances by Shem Yosha. Amen. Thank you. Okay, my brother Barab, Rob Barabanov. How are you going? How's it going, Rob? Shabbat shalom. <laughs> How about shalom? I got, I, got so, I got something for you here. Oh, oh no, no. He did it again. He did it again. <laughs> Wait a minute, wait a minute, Rob, turn that up a little more sideways. I got to see the top of that again. Oh, man, that is one killer loaf of holla right there. Uh, yeah, well, once the Russian wheat is gone, you won't be baking that anymore. <laughs> no, no, I, I, my family is from uh, basically all over there. My mom was born in Germany and my father and uh, his father is uh, German uh, slash Ukrainian slash Russian, uh, hence the name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Barabanov. Well, you know, typically the the off is a uh, is a Russian uh, name, and it's yeah, it's, o, it's Ov. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, well, the OV, so that is, in terms of a regional area, that's actually to the east of the Caucasus in South Central Russia. Because when you get into Central Russia, it's more of an I-N ending. And then when you get up to the St. Petersburg, S-K-Y, right? In Ukraine, it's mostly an N-K-O ending, right? Like Yukashenka or um, uh, Timoshenka, right? So, and not pronounced O, Timoshenko, but Timoshenka, right? Um, so those are Ukraine, and then Belarusian names are typically Czech, right? Yanukovych. Uh, so the Belarusian names end with IC, Ukrainian names NKO, Russian names OVIN and SKY. Okay. Amen. Hey, um, yeah, uh, just to, speaking to the last, uh, uh, I'm going to try to do this real quick here. Um, the last, uh, the, the Sons of Belial uh, situation, um, the um, just um, we, we, the understanding, and my wife and I were discussing this, you know, the understanding of um, uh, biblical marriage in scripture is when a man makes an agreement with a woman and lies with a woman or knows a woman. Yeah. Uh, that there's a there is a covenant okay and that's why um when uh whether it be rape whatever whatever it may be um there is a soul tie there is a, we learned that from spiritual warfare but there is a covenant when a man knows a woman uh doesn't matter if you're uh, that covenant there's always a covenant so uh it's of my understanding that this uh, Levit Levit levitical priest understood that and when 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 a man lies with a, or knows a woman, be it whatever situation, they're creating this covenant. When, it, when a man defiles another man, that's just abomination and complete destruction. Yes, but there's a covenant. And that's why I do believe that the body was split up. I don't know how it is a very egregious situation, but spread all over. And that's why the judgment was so great of all the men being uh, destroyed by Yah. Uh, because every time uh, he, he holds uh, marriage, uh, obviously very high, because Yahusha Hamashiach was sent uh, to, um, we are all married to um, uh, Yahusha. And Yahusha has more than one, if you want to say this, wife. Um, the, in provisions in scripture, many of our patriarchs come from uh, men that have more than one wife. Obviously, there's the first wife and there's uh, that situation. But then there's the um, uh, the situation with the concubines and the concubines. Um, uh, many of our patriarchs, many of our uh, came from uh, came from that situation. Um, it's nothing less. It's just an order of yacht. Um, and there's a legal right that goes with that situation. And that needs to be considered in all situations. Um that's why uh, many of the priests and stuff from history on, they would they love to molest little boys instead of little girls because of that fact. They, the, the judgment wasn't as great and they did not enter into a covenant that was set forth by the creator. And they understood this to some degree. Um, but that, this is something that's really needs to. Um, Yahusha brought gave us an ability to repent for sins and be brought and renewed into the covenant, have the covenant renewed. So this situation with the, uh, uh, the renewed covenant is the same situation with a, a woman who's been, uh, uh, same with a man. Uh, the situation, it's hard to talk about this, but it needs to be talked about. Um, 
Yah holds a virgin bride at a very high price. And that was the stature. That's the standard that everything's set to. Praise Yah for the, the rejuvenation of our, our, the women and, and, and all that, that situation. But um, that's where the concubine situation comes, comes in. And Yah says for, for us to humble ourselves and, and to be lifted up by him and not to be uh, offended. And many, unfortunately, women and, and men are offended by Yah's patriarchal rule. Uh, man, like Yahusha, man, wife, family. That's the standard. That's how it is. And Yah's not going to change that. So if you want to get into the millennial brain, if you have an issue now, you better work that issue out now with Yah. Uh, a man, there is provision for a man to have more than one wife in scripture. Uh, I'm not promoting it. I'm not saying it, but there is provision. Um, but that's where the, the uh, concubine situation comes in. Not meaning they're less of anything. Yes, this, there, there is a, a, a price for the original wife and bride that needs to be paid, but then there's lesser uh, scripture. There's also a scripture that says seven women will come to one man just for the, cover, the covering yeah. of the name. And it's the covering of the, that the women are seeking. They said they will supply all their own needs and necessity because normally a man, when a man lies with a woman, his requirement is to provide everything that she needs for the rest of her days. End of story. So even if some, a woman is raped, that man is literally required to to supply that, and that's 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 a standard set out by Yah. Um, obviously, this is a it's a very touchy situation, but it's uh, the facts need to be. No, but stated. I mean those points as difficult as they are, Rob. Now, but you know, you know that um, when you look at the history of polygamy in, in the text, you, you're going to see nothing but problems, right? I mean, yes, even with Yaakov, you know, he had he had all these kids from four different women, and then when Joseph is born, they want to kill him, and they try to kill him. You know, yeah. when David has all these kids from all these different women, what happens? Well, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters and the other son goes and kills him. And then that son tries to kill him, you know. So <clears throat> and you see that kind of dynamic, particularly when children come out of polygamous relationships. This is the kind of thing you see. So scripture yeah. does teach about that. And Mashiach said, what? Hey, look, I tell you the truth. In the beginning, it was not so. Right that Yah had created them, male and female, he created them, that they would be united in one flesh. They would be united as one. And that a yeah. man would leave his mother and father and cleave unto his woman. And, and I think that's a strong and a great teaching. And, you know, but I mean, when you're talking about the responsibility of the rapist, and you're talking about the creation of the covenant, and you're talking about these kinds of things, I mean, scripture did at no time did it provide for or intend that society would be a society full of fornication. You know, that yeah. is, that is, that is a pagan society. That's a pagan society. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like, I've made the point, I don't know. I've been, I must've made it half a dozen times in this last 10 days. If you go back and you look at the case of Griswold versus Connecticut, which was the case that opened the door to Roe v. Wade. Griswold versus Connecticut was about a married couple in Connecticut. The law in Connecticut refused, uh, prohibited the uh, procurement of any contraceptives, uh, period. Contraceptives were illegal in Connecticut, and even a married couple could not buy them. And so Griswold sued and said, that violates my rights as a married couple. And then the court created this body of rights that existed under the penumbra of the Ninth Amendment, Right that didn't exist otherwise. But in that decision, Justice Harlan writes, 
in a concurring opinion, look, just because we're opening the door to contraceptives in Connecticut doesn't mean that homosexuality, adultery, and fornication are not still criminalized in all 50 states. Okay, that behavior was criminalized in all 50 states in 1972, criminalized. Okay, so you can see that Yah had never intended for a society of fornicators. He had intended for a society of people that would, young people who would learn, a, a man would learn to court a woman by presenting himself to the father who was her cover and telling the father, I have enough resources to replace your cover over this woman. In other words, you can let go of your cover because I have enough cover to cover her. And then the father would evaluate the man to see if, if you did in fact have enough cover to do that. And if you didn't have enough cover, then it's, well, you don't have enough cover. And so you're not taking my daughter, right? Mm, I, and so th this was the kind of courtship that was done. So the, the, the young man would have to court the family. And then the daughter, of course, was going to have some say in that as well. They, this guy can have all the cover he wants. So I'm not leaving with him, right? You could still have that kind of a thing. But when you get to Hugh Hefner's problem, where his wife was cheating on him, and so he became a serial fornicator and then began to advocate adultery as a national policy, and took the success of Playboy magazine to build the Playboy Foundation, which then began lobbying for no-fault divorce and for you know the ascendancy of adultery and fornication as a way of life, right? Here comes this whole thing where, where millions are being spent to lobby Congress. And finally, in 2012, New York was the last state to fall that fell into the, the, you know, the decriminalization or the, uh, the construction of no-fault divorce. New York was the very last state to adopt it in the United States. So Playboy succeeded, started in 1959, succeeded by 2012. Now, as a result of this, you see that we have entered into a society where now, I mean, you talk to kids that are in high school right now, and they'll tell you it's common for people to be dating the same sex in high school, and there's no questions asked, right? There's kids that are appearing, you know, transgendered or transsexual in high school, in, in middle school. And it's like you're, you're instructed to accept this as the norm. So fornication and adultery has become the norm. Now, we're not even talking about concubines anymore. We're just talking about two people who are having sex together, and they could care less whether there's a marital status, a concubine status, or any other kind of status, right? Until so, they lose their soul. Until they lose what? Until they lose their soul and it's got holes all over it. And... Yeah, I mean, there you go. And so, and what happens, of course, is that you, you end up seeing people uh, walk into a world of destruction. They walk into a world of destruction and their life becomes destroyed. And, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have women who have given up their marriage, right? They've given up their marriage for this fornication relationship. And when they should be in a marriage with the man they love and building a long-term relationship, some guy is stealing all of that from them with the intention of kicking her to the curb in favor of some other girl who's going to be willing to do the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of, you know, and so now we have this, you know, we have this predilection. If you guys don't mind me talking about this, you know, they have this thing as I forget what they call it. Now these guys who are like, you know, serial non-daters because nobody will date them because what's going on in the world of fornication, because there are no standards is, 
all the girls want to sleep with the same guy, right? It's the same guy. There's one guy and he's collecting all the girls. And, you know, and so this kind of situation that's going on because there's, there's no standards, there's no celebration of virginity, there's no celebration of building a long-term life, there's no intelligence that goes into the idea of a woman being under her father's cover until she's under her husband's cover. None of that's considered. That's, that's not what's going on at all, you know. And so you have a group of people who are really complaining about this now. Well, they say the marriage is just a piece of paper now. They um, say that sex is just an activity, that it's not a godly thing. It's marriage is yeah. a piece of paper. Yeah, I, can, I can actually speak to that real quick here. Um, when I, it's about my understanding that the revelation of Yah, that Yah gave me, um, when a man is married to a woman and they, have, they know each other for the first time, that's the, the, that, that's the, the beginning of the covenant. And then anytime they... Uh, know each other after that that's a renewing of that original covenant oh Just, yeah 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 that's a good word and you know when and now that's you know, deep <laughs> we've got scientific evidence to this effect now because we know that you know now the science has proved that the dna of the man is retained in the woman forever yes. right and so she, like the, uh, it, yeah i mean it's it's true and so they do become one flesh literally uh, in a, a scriptural point of view. So anyway, it's a good issue that you've raised, Rob. And it's an issue where, you know, again, when we look to structure of society, our young people are not being taught, our young men are not being taught how to court a woman. And when you're talking about courting a woman, you know, part of that courting is you have to be able to go to her father and say, I can cover her. And that means you, you shouldn't be courting a woman before you've you're established yourself as a breadwinner and, and, and your breadwinning is actually paying off. You know, you got a savings account, you got your own place, you got your own car. You know what I mean? You're on your own two feet. Now, when you're in that situation, now you can begin to court. And you have to remember that marriage is the most important decision you're ever going to make throughout your entire lifetime. That is the decision. You can't walk into it saying, oh, well, I can always get divorced. No, this is this is going to be the key decision that's going to make all the difference in terms of whether or not you're a successful person or a destroyed person. And that's so you have, to, you have got to be very careful about how you walk it. But the father and the father's contributing to this by saying, hmm, let me see. Let me do some due diligence into the aspect of your cover, young man. Let me see what that looks like, right? And he's looking, the young man's going, I got it. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. You know, and of course, you know, a, a good relationship, a good marriage relationship has to do with whether or not can your husband, does your husband love your parents or is he incompatible with your parents? Mm -hmm. If he's incompatible with your parents, he's probably going to be incompatible with you too. You know, if you're incompatible with his parents, you're probably going to be incompatible with him too. So all of these things are kind of things that you have to look at. Anyway, hopefully young people will be taught this and they need to be taught this in this upcoming generation because there's a whole bunch of young people out there that are going, look, everything you guys have handed us, this pop culture that we're being handed is really badly polluted, right? It's no like, fear. No fear. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, the and, line. And, so, and so you got this ugliness out there, right? And it's like, you know, you come to the kids and you say, look, this is the fresh water we have for your generation. We took it out of the septic tank. Dip it will. And the kids are going, you know, really? You know, PU, right? 
All right, Rob, did you have anything else for us, brother? Um, one really quick thing, just because of its, its importance in Revelation 13, um, I'll just read it real quick. Um, uh, 13, verse 14 down. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which have the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Um, uh, just to, just for the understanding, uh, all these people, uh, as reference to what I said last week and the weeks before, uh, all these people got these shots and they're still promoting them. Um, I do, and 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 they blotted out the name of Yah and put in the name of Hasatan. There is another beast coming along that five G and AI um, is going to come along, and he's going to give a voice to that, and that's what's unveiling right now. And we have the digital ID everywhere. It's even. Um, uh, the president of the United States. It's hard to say it correctly, but hold on just a second, trucking. Hold on just a second, trucking. Okay. Let, let these guys the go for a little bit, okay? Yeah, he, he he announced the digital ID, and that's what we're going into. I do believe we're right there in that situation where that image of that beast is going to be triggered by the AI, um, and all the evidence, which is numerous, is pointing to that. Yeah, and I got to tell you, Rob, when you talk about that, uh, when Bethany was talking earlier, uh, you know, we had an event here at my house. My brother-in-law was staying uh, overnight, and I think we had a 5G surge in the household, right? I mean, he's on a pacemaker, and his, his you know, I mean, he can monitor, so he monitors everything, and his heart was just rushing, you know? Oh. He, went from a, he went from a steady pulse at 64 beats per minute to 140 and it happened in the middle of the night and it can be, it's possible that what Bethany was experiencing wasn't just demonic, but also could have been a 5G surge being shoved out in the neighborhood. And these 5G surges, I mean, they're, they're capable of killing us, you know? And so they, you know, they test these things out in the middle of the night and they put these massive signals out and they, you know, bombard us. So, uh, you know, but when you talk about, you know, the, one of the key things about this verse you brought up, and he deceives them that dwell on the earth and he deceives them. You see, so people say, well, you, I, that can't possibly be the mark because you have to intentionally take it. No, right here, it says in Revelation 13, talking about the mark, he deceives them. He deceives them. And when you get into 1823 in Revelation, it says by his sorceries, by his pharmakia, the whole world is deceived by his pharmacia. And so when we, when we look at all these things, when, so when, when a trucker was asking about where are we in Revelation, we can see, I think, that the mark has already been introduced. The mark has all the, I mean, you know, and I'm not going to get into it now, Rob, because I could be here for another three hours talking about what's in the bags, right? Yeah. But we do know that there is a digital ID inside your body 
a lot of the people when they when they first got the vax guys would come up to them with the barcode reader at walmart put it on their arm and get a barcode come right off their arm your your apple phone will pick up a bluetooth transmitter off the vax site right and so i mean you know so you have you know they they have intended for you to be digitally marked digitally marked with what it was that they injected you and they are you know and this is the um you know, you got to remember that people who love Satan do not love the truth and are usually incapable of understanding the truth or even seeing the truth. And so the truth is, is that all of their stuff is failing radically. So, so you get this promise comes in from these techies like this guy, Yovel Noah Harari. I don't know if you heard his speaking to the World Economic Forum. But the stuff that came out of his mouth is oh, the most wicked things I have ever Cl heard Cloche, said. Cloche is uh, like first-hand man or whatever. Yeah, his right-hand man. Tell him, right here's, how you, here's how you run a dictatorship, right? We don't do it by some god in the clouds up there, but we have the ability to change mankind, and we're going to change them permanently by introducing AI. And by introducing, right? This is all their idea. We're going to replace anything God would do with what we want to do. And we're going to do it digitally. So you have these promises coming out of guys like Elon Musk and other people saying, oh, well, we can replace all these jobs by 2030 with robots. You know, and one of these one of these arrogant guys in D.C. said, oh, let the truckers strike. We'll just put self-automated trucks on the road. And I wanted to tell that guy, oh, you're going to put self-automated trucks on the road, huh? Well, why don't you get out there and we'll start in downtown L.A., and you can take a large size load out of downtown LA, drive it on up to uh, you know Bonner's Ferry, Idaho, and then take it from there to Duluth, Minnesota. And oh, you show me you can do it. Then we'll talk about your self-driving truck. Okay, Exhibit A. <laughs> but these guys think that they can do this, right? Oh, we've we've got all this technology right now to replace you. Well, you don't. You guys moved way too soon. You don't have it. Well, we can kill off all the useless eaters that we're going to replace with robots. Well, guess what? If you had them, why aren't they here now? Because you don't have them and they don't work. And they never think. They never, they never go to part B. Oh, the expert told me this is what the situation is. Therefore, let's do it right now. Let's kill off the useless eaters. So the truth is what? Our governments are at war with us and they are actively right now in an active campaign to kill most of us and they're going to either do it by an infected jab they're going to do it by, with 5g radiation they're going to do it with the nuclear war or they're going to do it through starvation but one way or another we're going to get rid of you we can we can thank trudeau for exposing a whole lot of stuff uh, and praise Yah for us standing in the gap and praying because uh, what they wanted to do and what they attended um, did not work out as they wanted. And it exposed a lot of stuff to the world, um, the evil that we're facing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people want to say, well, let's stand with Ukraine. But I mean, you know, when I look at, at Volodymyr Zelensky with his Nazi T-shirt and his protocols that have been used in Ukraine, which include genocide, ethnic genocide. I'm not standing with that guy, period. I'm not standing with him. There's no chance that I'm going to stand with that guy. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. All oh, right. Let's sorry. 
Can I just butt in another thing? Chris is going to get really mad at you because he's been waiting since the very first minutes of the program to talk. Okay, but go ahead. Sorry, Chris. Um, Also, you were just talking there to Rob about they want to kill us, they want to kill us, they want to kill us. But they're also going to kill us with the environment. Now, why I say this is because our horrible farmer, BG, I don't want to say his name because he makes me so angry. I'll say it anyway, Bill Gates. He wants to put an umbrella over the sun to have only partial sunlight. Doesn't the stupid man see he will cause a mini ice age? I can't, you know, I don't know why the average human being cannot accept the fact that Bill Gates is smarter than, yeah, I mean, it, it's obvious. Anybody can see it. He's obviously stupid. richer than Yah. That's why, you know, that's why he's so rich. It's because he's smarter than Yah himself. <laughs> I mean, this guy is just nothing but pure genius on steroids. No, he's very, very stupid. <laughs> he is. He's going to end up causing the mini ice age. He really is stupid. It, well, if he can he actually so- get away with that nonsense. See, this is the whole thing. They think they're going to label us in a digital world. They're going to tie us up to a computer. They're going to force us to be, you know, electrons on a microchip. The ones of us who survive, we're all going to be monitored in a social credit system. All of that stuff requires electricity. It requires batteries. It requires, uh, you know, rare earth. It requires lithium. It requires nickel. And we just sanctioned the country that provides all that stuff. Did you think about that? Biden, before he did it, uh, 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 well, wait, uh, well, wait a minute. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. You remember Tesla just put 50 billion in the U.S. Ford just put 15 billion in to build electric cars. GM just put 15 billion in to build electric cars. And now they can't get batteries. Uh, Stephen, they uh, can get batteries. They're uh, going after Africa. Well, well, wait a minute. Uh, just a minute. Uh, uh, we've got a plant. No, you don't. They, they have no plant. What they have is an itch. They have no plan, right? That's it. So yeah, Bill Gates and his umbrella over the earth. Why? Because, oh, the globe is warming. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Al Gore say that New York was going to be under 15 feet of water? (laughs) New York was going to be under 15 feet of water by 2010. Well, the Old Testament says if a guy's prophecy doesn't come true, number one, you don't listen to him anymore. And number two, you stone the guy. Well, you know, I mean, Al Gore's been stoned since he was in Vietnam, so there's no need to do that. <laughs> John got that one. But, but the fact is, is that he is completely out of his tree, and the whole global warming stuff is. is, once again, total fraud, and we're supposed to regurgitate it. Look, we created a fraudulent document. Now, everybody say after me, global warming. Well, wait a minute. The record shows that we're actually in a global cooling space. Well, say global warming until somebody brings that up. Then say climate change. Oh, you mean like summer, Mm. fall, winter, spring? Climate Mm. change? Is that what you're talking about? I mean, you know, Mm. these guys, you know, and and the fact that anyone would buy this diatribe, it's like, oh, we're going to switch over to green energy. Okay. Well, what does that mean? We're going to deny you any gas or petroleum product run product. This is what Pete Buttigieg, you know, he and his husband, 
there in Washington, D.C., are doing for us. Instead of us developing with oil and natural gas or using Canadian oil and natural gas or Alaskan oil and natural gas, oh, no, no, no. We're going to run to Saudi Arabia on our knees and beg them. Now that we've cut ourselves up from Russian oil and gas that we didn't use at all two years ago, now that we've cut ourselves up from that, we got to go to Saudi Arabia. Can you guys up to production? Go run to Venezuela, all owned by Russians. Can you guys please? Uh, we don't like you. We called you every name under the sun. And we're going to overthrow you last year. But can you give us oil now? Right. And why can't we get American oil or Canadian oil? Because Pete Good Buttigieg wants us all to switch over to Tesla's. So mm. our good friend, you know, corrupt potty mouth Stephen Colbert, comes out and says, well, "I'm willing to pay five dollars a gallon to do the right thing for Ukraine, and you should be willing to do that." I see you holding up something, Carla, but I'm I'm not seeing what it is. I'm sorry, because I, I, th that's what I've been wanting to say for a while now. I heard this, but I can't, um, I don't know if it's true. So I wanted to ask, this was posted on Instagram. Biden approved infrastructure bill, mandated kill switches coming to cars by 2026. Have you heard about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, kill switch, right? Everybody get on the electric car. And then when you disobey us, we shut you down in the middle of the freeway. Right. Well, wait a minute. Uh, you couldn't do that to my old Honda. But, you know, so so here it is. Right. So you have all of this this kind of protocol coming. And now they can't. And so here it's like, well, and what did Stephen Colbert say? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we should be willing to pay five dollars a gallon just to do the right thing for Ukraine. Oh, by the way, I drive a Tesla. <laughs> so you <laughs> can pay five dollars a gallon. I'm going to be in my Tesla. <laughs> Isn't that just hilarious? Wow, that's so funny. I wish I could afford a $150,000 car. And guess what? Next year, when I have to replace the batteries, that's going to be $200,000 just for the batteries. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, so everybody switched to an electric car, except we're not building them yet, except we don't have the infrastructure to support them. So in the meantime, what? Walk? In the meantime, pay $10 a gallon? In the meantime, well, have your family destroyed? Now, I'm going to tell you just one story before I go to Chris. Chris, I love your brother. Just hang on just one second. We're talking last night in the fellowship, and Sue brings up the story about this guy. She works at a supermarket. And this guy is trying to get into the supermarket, but he can barely get out of his car because he's old. He's disabled. He lives alone in some cabin up in the woods in Houston. And he's trying to get into the supermarket. So he finally makes it into the supermarket. And he buys five bags of groceries. And he's trying to figure out, how do I get those groceries up the steps to my front door at my house? <laughs> this was the equation. And Sue is talking to him. And she's, you know, and, and he's weeping, you know, because he's got an unforgiveness issue between him and his son. He's got no one to help him at all to do anything. There's no one to help him oh. at all. And so she's talking to him and she's praying with him and, you know, going through this stuff. And she said, the reason she brought it up so much was because she went through the exact same thing eight months ago with another older gentleman who could barely walk, walking in and out of the store, trying to get his groceries, trying to get back to his house. And when he went back to his house, he shot himself. And she can see this happening with this old man here, that he was going to go down that exact same path. Because we have gotten to a point where there is no compassion left. There's no anything left, you know? 
And so when we talk about this world where you've got these government guys who are listening to a bunch of pinhead academics who spend all their life staring at a computer screen, telling them what's going to happen, and it's not happening. What's happening in reality is people are dying, and they're dying in droves, and suicide is through the roof, and fentanyl deaths are through the roof, and this stuff, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse because they don't care. Their computers do not care about you one iota, not one little bit. So, and who is going to care? We, yeah. So here, Tara says, 95% of lithium is located in Afghanistan. Oh, and you think that Joe Biden didn't know that? Why do you think we were there? So that we can maintain the lithium for Tesla's batteries. We can maintain the lithium for your cell phone. We can maintain the lithium for your laptop. What do we do? Abandon it. Chris, go ahead, brother. Yeah, shalom to all. Um, I just actually, uh, first of all, I want to apologize for last week because I lost my faith a little bit. I was a bit wobbly um, and I didn't believe quite as what I should. And I thank you very much for praying because I really, the next day I was 100% again. So thank you very much to this group. It's beautiful um, having this fellowship. And uh, it's the same uh, with Bethany tonight. You know, I feel, I feel how you're feeling. Relax. Yah is in control. He will bring you through. He is always with you. I would say, uh, hang off the satanic stuff. Don't delve in that. You don't have to. Delft in his goodness and in his, and, and, and in his, and in his provision and the things that, uh, that will build you up. Now, second of all, uh, you, Doc, um, pleasure. So, so um, I, I, and I, and I pray that Yah blesses you, Bethany. Pray that he blesses you. And Amen. You feel Amen. It, but um, uh I actually, for a very funny thing, I wanted to talk about exactly what you and Rob were talking about. I disagree with you, Rob. Love you very much. Disagree completely. Yah didn't make a provision for any second marriage. It was only because Moses writes, as you said, Doc, there in, in, in uh, well, actually, Yahusha says in uh, Matthew uh, 19, he said unto them, Moshe, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your woman. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say unto you, whosoever puts away his woman, except it be fornication, shall marry another, breaks wedlock. So in other words, even if it's not your fault, and you marry another, you're still breaking wedlock. And he says here, and we must remember that that is a commandment given to, to Moshe. And in, in Mark 10, it's very interesting, because they said unto Moshe, suffered to write a sefer of divorcement, and to put her away. Uh, and Yahusha answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, Elohim made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his woman, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. Uh, what, therefore, Yah has joined together, let no man put asunder. So, so I, I mean, I must clarify, I do agree with you, Rob, that, um, that uh, by having many relationships, that's a big no-no, and you do have all those bonds which are, you know, horrible to break. All right. 
So, so, but the point is that Yah said this, and uh, well, Jesus, Yahusha said this, but then I was reading Leviticus 25 and 26 today, and it talks very much of the land that keeps the Sabbath. And uh, I just want to read one little bit here in uh, Leviticus 25, verse 18. Wherefore, he shall do my statutes and guard my judgments and do them, and he shall dwell in the land in safety, and the land shall yield her fruit, and he shall eat your fill and dwell therein safely. And if he shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. Um, then I will command its blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. So, okay, look, I'm, I'm not going to carry on because you can carry on for the whole two chapters, which, 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 which really, really knock home the point of a Sabbath day and then also keeping the judgments and the precepts and the statutes of Yahweh. Now, when he says these things in Mark and in uh, Matthew, a thought came to me today, uh, Epiphany, is that when did this happen? Well, I believe it happened to Adam and Eve because the precepts were there with them. And what happened is once they went against the precepts, now I'm not saying that Eve had an adulterous relationship. I'm just saying that even Yahusha says, when we look at somebody with lust in our eyes, we have committed that sin. If we speak evil of, of another, then we have committed that sin of, of uh, a murder. So this could have maybe happened. I don't know. Um, whatever happened, happened. They did sin. And therefore, the land kicked them out. Yahusha had pardoned it. Obviously, Yahweh had pardoned it. But the land spewed them out because the land cannot take that sin, and especially that garden that was meant for the purity of Yah's prize possession or creation. And I think, uh, I think that, that uh, maybe is what he was talking about there when he says, before it was not so. Just May I speak for a moment? Sure. You've got you've got thirty seconds. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, our understanding of, of of a man and woman. A man cannot be a virgin. Okay. Uh, and a woman can only be. Uh, um, uh, she has an opportunity once in her life. So a man can technically have more than one covenant relationship. One man, one woman. Yes, but. But he can have many of those relationships, just like Yahusha has relationships with each one of us. Otherwise, he's breaking his situation, his, his uh, covenant with us, um, because he has more than one. Just saying. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, uh, just, to, just to clarify this, because I'm not understanding you. Are you saying that it's okay for a man to have many wives or women or many women relationships? Covenant relationships. If a, man, if a man fulfills those agreements in that relationship, taking care of them, doing all that stuff, obviously there's provision in scripture for the first wife that she gets the inheritance. She gets all the, the majority of it, but the other ones can have 
all the other, they have the covering. Many will have the, they have the covering to get into the kingdom uh, because it didn't have, well, it, it gets complicated there, but it, there's provision in scripture. If you read it from that understanding that a man can have more than one covenant relationship, not just one. I know everybody goes on one because the, the whole, everything's based on monogamous, um, uh, this, this you structure know, I, that we have. And we know okay. that nobody follows a monogamous situation. Everybody's serial monogamy or however you want to say it. Okay, yeah. but now hold on, but hold on, okay. brother. Hold on, hold on just a minute. Let me interject for just a second. Because I can tell you that when we, when we look at this, you know, first of all, I want to kind of clarify something. You know, I'm not one of these guys who believes that we are the bride of Mashiach, okay? I'm a guy who believes that Scripture tells us in Revelation 20 that the bride of Mashiach is the New Jerusalem. Now, some people say, well, we're New Jerusalem, therefore we're the bride of Mashiach. But Scripture tells us the bride of Mashiach is New Jerusalem. We are, Paul tells us that we are the members of the body of Mashiach. We are the members of the body. We're the stones built without hands of the temple and the members of his body. And, you know, Colossians 1 talks about this. He is the head. He is the Rosh. We are the goof. You know, we're the body. And so because of that, you know, I don't see us as being, as, as Yahusha being married in a polygamous relationship with all his children. I don't see that at all. I don't see it that way. I see us as being, you know, the cells of the body. We are Mashiach. We are the temple. And, but we're not the head. We're just the body. We're not the one doing the thinking. We're not the one with the wisdom, the understanding and the knowledge. We're just the body. And we're doing our function that we're called to do as participating members. But when you talk about the polygamous relationships, I do think that Mashiach was talking very clearly when he said they should be united as one flesh. Now, when a man becomes united with a second flesh, that's second flesh, right? That's second flesh. And the woman, his first woman, is not united with that second flesh. So as a consequence, she's no longer one flesh with him. He's one flesh with a couple of people. and But she isn't. And so she's no longer one flesh with him and the one flesh i think when you look at this thing for what is proposed in scripture and i think it is proposed that it goes to one man one woman that what is proposed here is that and of course for a lot of us one man one woman has become an impossibility you know because divorce has come through like a nuclear war through the social order and i mean you know look i used to be in family law and i can tell you i can't tell you how many divorces i have been on one side or the other in the courtroom going through all of the everything that ever happened between two people who swore just a couple years back they were going to love each other until death do they part through sickness and health and on and on and on they left out the one vow that says until you don't share the remote right but the, the uh you know but the the thing is is that when you know when you're talking about when you talk about uh divorce in the modern world yeah it's happened it splattered the families all over the curb but the family is the backbone of society. The family structure is what makes the social order well and healthy. And the family structure proposed by Yah is one man and one woman. You see Adam and Eve married for 900 years. 900 years. You know, there's nothing in scripture that says Adam took on a second wife, right? And in fact, there's nothing in scripture that anybody took on a second wife until you get to Abraham. And let's talk, let's talk about Abraham for a minute. You know, Abraham, Abraham is not my favorite guy in the Bible. Okay, I'll grant you, he was made covenant, all this, and he was the father of many nations. But Abraham, you know, when 
when Sarah could not bear children. And here's Sarah. Sarah is really, in my mind, a, really a celebrated person in scripture. She really is something else. She's the princess, you know, and she, not only is she the princess, but she is the woman who's going to carry the seed of the promise. It's going to be Sarah. And here you have Abraham and he's like, yeah, yeah, well, whatever. I'm moving along here, you know, and Sarah finally says, well, I can't have kids. I'm in my eighties. I can't have kids. Let's get a surrogate mom. Let's bring in a surrogate mom. And they bring in the surrogate mom and she has the baby and the surrogate mom doesn't live up to her contractual rights, which is to give the baby up and leave. Instead, she says, nope, I'm the wife now. Because guess what? Like you have said before, Abraham ended into a covenant with her. As soon as he had sex with her, he's in a covenant relationship with Hagar. And this covenant relationship becomes a bond and she exploited it. And she said, well, I'm, you know, you're now my covenant husband. And so what does he say? Well, let Ishmael be the son of the promise, right? This is Abraham. He goes to Yah and says, let Ishmael be the son of the promise. And Yah says, that's not what I told you. I told you Sarah was going to be the, the, the woman, that the seed of the promise was going to come to her. And he wanted Sarah to wait, right? Just like he wanted Abraham to wait. But Abraham said, oh, look, there's a ram in the thicket. Let's kill it. Sarah said, oh, look, I can't wait any longer. Go use her to have a child, right? Nobody was, and, and, and this is the story. Nobody was willing to wait for Mashiach to come because they had to wait 1,500 years. Let's sacrifice the bull. Let's sacrifice the lamb. We're not going to wait for his blood because we're, we're not patient because we don't want to wait with the way Yah wants to wait. And so here you have Sarah. And of course, what happens to Sarah as a result, you know? She gives birth to the child. And what's Abraham decide to do? Well, I'm going to sacrifice him. Well, scripture doesn't say I'm going to sacrifice him. It says the angel of Yahweh told him to go sacrifice him. And so he goes up to sacrifice him. And when Sarah does not see it, Sarah isn't there to see the angel say, stop, don't touch the boy. And the fact that she believed he died killed her, killed her. And, you know, and so here, and, and this whole business of who Sarah is, is reflected in Matthew 1, because we begin the litany of the 42 generations, starting with Abraham. We don't go back to Adam. We start with Abraham. And so here, when we're talking about this idea of one man, one woman, you know, these relationships, when they're perfected, when they're perfected, should be a lifetime relationship. But there is so much garbage in the world right now telling women, you know, I mean, come on, you know, break out your Virginia Slims. You've come a long way, baby. You know what I mean? You know what the, the feminist world has told women, go home and compete with your husband. Right. Go home and compete with your husband. Yeah. Don't take any lip off him. You don't have to submit to your husband, even though Mashiach submitted himself to the father. Um, what's it say in the what's it say in the Gospels? Because he submitted himself to the father perfectly, he had the perfect authority of the father in mm -hmm. all things, except he didn't know when the end of heaven and earth were going to be. Other than that, he had the perfect authority of the father because he was in perfect submission. And <clears throat> this is the model that is taught to the husband and wife. Perfect submission to the authority of the man she takes on all of the authority of the man, but that last one-tenth of one percent, right? 
And a marriage like this can be built in a very strong, very healthy, uh, very committed way that can last a lifetime. You know, but guess what? Go ahead, finish it. Well, the thing is, when you, when, you know, any marriage, you know, marriages are just like a ship sailing at sea, right? You go out there some days, the sun's shining, the wind is blowing, and the sea's flat. And then you wake up one morning, the sun isn't shining, and you're in 40-foot seas, and you better batten down everything because you're, 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 you're not going to make it. And there's times when you're not going to make it in your marriage. You're not going to make it. You know you're not going to make it. Your wife knows you're not going to make it. You both know you're not going to come out of this thing. But because you have both said in your heart, we're going to come out of it through thick or thin. We're going to come out of it no matter what. This storm may want to sink the ship, but we're going to come out of it. And when you do come out of it. We should make like a a whole meeting about marriage alone because... I mean, a lot of us just come out of situations. I have two two children uh, from two different dads. Like my daughter was born, I was still 17. Then 10 years later, I have my son. Um, but because again, it, it's so deep, right? Because I feel that since I was born again, like I fornicated, not just physically in the world, but you know, towards Abba, right? So I feel like when we decide to 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 enter the covenant and we die to the old ourselves and become renewed. Um, I feel like that's, that's, that's where, I mean, as a body, the body of Messiah, we should never have divorce in our vocabulary, right? And fornicating is part of that because that's what divorces us, cheating on the partner, right? Now, I think that we should go into like that because I have decided for myself through Abba's guidance, that when I got baptized, when I decided to come into this covenant, I cut that, like I'm what they call a reborn virgin or whatever you call it, you know what I mean? Um, Because of that, I think, and this is just my two cents, I think that the whole thing about um, marriage, divorce and all that, as the world sees it right now, is completely wrong. We are not educated on it. But once we start following Torah, once we were studying his word and we realized that Messiah said, yeah, there's no divorce except for fornication or putting them away. When we are born again or we take on this covenant is the renewal of all that. And like, that's what I'm, I've been doing. Like I've, the, <laughs> the last boyfriend I had in the world, in the world. Uh, that's why that didn't work out because I, I decided, no, I have to do it the right way now. So I'm thinking it will be amazing because I don't know, I don't know if other women, uh, you know, the rest of our, my sisters in here would agree or have questions about that, the non-married ones right now. But that's what I feel like. Yeah, there's, there's no divorce. There should never be divorce. That, that word should not exist. Because from Adam and Eve, as you have said before. Now, for those of us but, who but live this Carla, life, but, but Carla, yeah. in order to eliminate divorce, the first thing that has to be done is an intelligent marital decision. And an intelligent marital decision cannot be made by a boy who has not created enough cover to replace the cover of a woman's father. And he has to recognize that he has to 
enter into a relationship, not only with her, but he's going to be part of her family and she's going to be part of his family. And we all know that, like as one guy said, you know, marriage is a triangle. It's you and your spouse and Yah. <clears throat> and when the two of you both pursue Yah together, you come closer together. You come closer together. And this is what should be happening over the lifetime. So, I mean, I think that, you know, you're right. This is a discussion that we're going to have to, that we're going to have to pick up for another day and spend some time talking about, about biblical marriage. Because I'll tell you, there's a great book that was written by a Canadian. It's called The War Against the Family. And, you know, it's huge. That thing is thick. I think it's 1,200 pages. But it is a fantastic book. And it's still as true today as it was back then. And uh, the war against the family, because the state has succeeded in warring against the family, we've become a destroyed social order. And we remoralize the culture by, you know, a culture is defined by how you marry and how you bury. That's what defines a culture. And so when we, you know, we have to look at, at what we're going to do as a people, and we have to decide what we're going to do as a people to try. And even though we fail, we don't, there's, there isn't one of us that has been able to walk out purity, right? Maybe there are, maybe there's a few, a few among us that have been able to do that. But for the most part, we see a lot of tragedy in most lives. And even though that may be the case, that doesn't mean we cannot pursue a structure that will return us to a thriving and healthy standard, okay? So with that, let's leave it at that. Now, Chris, let me come back to you, brother. You wanted, was there something else you wanted to, wanted to add to our equation? Uh, no, Doc, no, I think, uh, I think I've, I've said enough. Uh, let's get to the other guys, yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks, brother. Thank you, Chris. Steven, thanks, for, thanks for picking up the lightweight for next week. Steven, can I be rude once more? Hey, Danny, it's Danny. Yeah, what's going on, Danny? My apologies for last week, and I'll apologize this week again because I don't like to cut in, and I know a lot of people are waiting, but I just wanted to say something real quickly. If Adam was the first Malkit Zadik, and he received the commandments, as we read in Genesis, we know and understand that a man shall leave his mother and father cleave and become one flesh. Knowing and understanding that this is re-mentioned in Matthews, we should understand that when Mashiach came, he came to do what? He was the renewed covenant. Why? Because my people went astray and they were stiff-necked and could not. So they had to receive that renewed covenant once again because of their imperfection. What is it mentioned there? That a man shall have one wife cleave to her. And this is the way we walk. He renewed it. He came with that same Marquisadik order. That was in that order because that was during the time of uh, 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 the beginning, since Adam. He was the first Marquisadik priest. And if you see in Genesis, it speaks of it clearly. So I believe that that was renewed when Mashiach came. Uh, and it says it clearly that a man becomes one, 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 one flesh, one, one, yeah, yes. one flesh. Yeah, uh, Danny, so Danny, Danny, all I, that I, other way of living. That's what I, I agree with you, Danny. To I agree. I agree with you, Danny. That is one hundred percent how I see it. I see that Moshe's Torah is um, is 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 not all perfect. And Amen. I mean, Yahusha says that. He says that. He says because of the hardness of your hearts. I have let him do that. Basically, that's what he's yes. saying, as far as I can understand. Yeah, and I agree with that. I agree with that, Chris. Yeah, because of the hardness of your hearts, most of suffered heart. to do that. But I tell right. you, in the beginning, it was not so. It was not so. Yeah, and yeah. that's why, 
And that's why you see Adam and Eve married until the end. You don't see them divorced. You don't see that they might have been chucked out of the garden because of their sin. But they stayed together. And I think that's very important. And um, as you said, Dr. P, uh, when you have polygamy, you have problems. I mean, there is just, the, you cannot have uh, two women sharing one man and not, and, and there's no dispute between them. It's, it's just not. It's so, not yeah, it's so in, in Genesis 38, um, Yah told, um, what's his name here, to, to break Torah. Yah commanded somebody to break Torah. In, Who's in Genesis, Genesis 38? 38. Who are you uh, where, where Yah told his um, uh, Onan to go into his brother's woman to marry her and raise up seed. He already had a family. He already had a wife. Yeah, you have a situation here. This is the right. This is one of the one of the. Um, so Yah said to break his commands. Yah the, said to break his own Torah. Okay, well, hold on, Rob. Hold on, wait a second. Because when you're talking about this section, you're talking about the kinsman redeemer, right? This is the story of the kinsman redeemer, and in the kinsman redeemer. You know, and again, you had the scribes confront Mashiach on the very same issue. And they come to him and they say, you know, it's illustrative, of course. It's not dead on point. But they come to him and say, hey, well, look, this guy marries this woman. And then he dies. So she marries his brother. He dies. So she marries his brother. He dies. She marries his brother. He dies. She marries his brother. He dies. She marries. So whose wife is she in heaven? And Mashiach says to him, well, I tell you the truth. In heaven, there is no marriage, Right. But you have this same kind of illustration because this story of the kinsman redeemer, right? Now, you, you said Genesis 38, did you say? You said Genesis 38, Rob? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Verse uh, four, six down. Yeah. So when, when you look at this kind of instruction, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm going I'm to have to take a close look at how this comes about. Okay. Uh, and, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to go back through and read that passage again so that I can understand what's going on. Because you have to remember that when we talk about Yah, first of all, who is man to judge Yah and his commands? That's, that's premise number one. Pre premise number two, you see that there are things happening that happens in the hand of Yah. Like when he sends a lying spirit yes. to tell people things, right? And you see other things that are going on, right? So... So when Yahoo does, you thought, okay, you're talking about this is Tamar, right? Oh, it's yeah. also it's also a command in Torah that a brother must raise up seed if his his brothers pass on, and yeah, but the thing is here. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What Torah this, do we follow now? I don't. Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. In this story here, this is the story of Tamar, and so you know, I I don't know that she was given to be somebody's second wife because. She, her, you know, the Canaanite son of Yehuda, which, by the way, was sinful. He wasn't supposed to marry a Canaanite woman. He did. The Canaanite son, his firstborn son, he brings in a Hebrew girl, Tamar, to marry his Canaanite son. And he's like, I'm not marrying her. Now, the chances are, because he had a Canaanite son, that his Canaanite son was practicing fornication along with every other Canaanite, right? But at any rate, so... He refuses to take her as a wife. He dies. So the second son, who did, doesn't say he had a family at all, he was supposed to marry her. And the second son does marry her, but he refuses to have sex with her. It's like, I'm not touching this, this Hebrew woman. And as a result, he dies. 
So now the third son, the third son, who is like, I don't know, 12 years younger than her, but he was way younger than her. Uh, you know, uh, Yehuda says to her, well, look, you can marry him. But then the, the passage goes on to say that when he grew up, he had already taken a wife, so she couldn't marry him. And so when that happens, she's going, well, you broke your promise. He was supposed to marry me. He didn't. You broke your promise. Now, I'm, now I have to live my life as a widow, right? And so here she is living her life as a widow. And then she finds out that Yehuda is going to go up to Vegas for a little while and shear some sheep, right? They didn't call it Vegas, but that's basically where he was headed, right? And so she goes up there and decks herself up where he can't recognize her. And he says, how much, baby? And she says, oh, it's not that expensive. I'll just take your cloak and your ring and your staff until you can pay me. Oh, that sounds like a good deal. He was right in on that, right? Yehuda was right there in on it. And, but, but you have to remember, his wife had already died. Yehuda's wife had already died. And so he has sex with Tamar. And when he has sex with Tamar, she gets pregnant and not a little bit pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. And so she, when she comes home, I mean, what, two months into it, she looks like she's five months pregnant, right? And all the people in there, oh, look, Tamar's pregnant. We know husband number one never slept with her. Husband number two never slept with her. And husband number three is living somewhere else with his wife. So she must have played the whore. And so Yehuda says, well, get in here. Okay, you're pregnant. You, you need to burn. That's what he says to her. You need to burn. And she says, well, before you burn me, let me show you who the father is. Here's his clothes. Welcome to Mari. Here's his staff. Here's his ring. And he goes, right? But even what does it say? Even after she gave birth to the twin boys who were actually Hebrew on both sides of the family, he never touched her again. He never touched her again. So this story is really a wild story. And again, it's a warts and all kind of production that's going on here in Genesis 38. It's a warts and all production. Because from these two kids, right, comes Perez, the father of the Pharisees, who Mashiach is in the direct line of Perez, and comes Zarak, who is the father of the Greek nation, who's the father of the Trojan nation, who's the father of the Iberian nation in Spain, and the father of the Gaelic nation in, in Ireland. All of this comes out of, comes out of this particular thing that happens right here. So it's on one hand, once again, you're talking about an ugly story. But on the other hand, you're talking about a beautiful story because we have this story of Zarak and Ferez that come from this, which is given to us. You know, when you look at the line in Matthew 1, Rahab is men mentioned in Matthew 1. She was a prostitute. Bathsheba is mentioned in Matthew 1. She was an adulteress. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean here it is. It's right here, right? So we have this kind of crazy stuff. But when it comes to polygamy, when you get to Abraham, and his relationship with Hagar, when, you know, Yitzhak does not take a second wife. Yaakov gets defrauded by Laban. And we all know, when you read scripture, you know that Leah was an absolutely beautiful woman. I mean, there's, you, you, can't, you can't avoid it. She was a beautiful woman. But he felt defrauded. He wanted to marry Raquel. And demanded it. And look what happened to Raquel. Raquel gets, okay, well, I'm going to become the second wife. 
And when she became the second wife, she's barren. She can't have kids. When she finally has kids, she have she has Joseph. The rest of the kids want to kill him. And when she finally gets pregnant a second time, she dies in childbirth. Like I mean, you know, it's crazy. Earlier you said about like the, the first person who I, I was shocked because I remember reading in the Sefer that the first person actually mentioned to take two wives were actually sisters. It was from the line of Cain. It was one of the guys from the line of Cain. He took two mm -hmm. wives and they were both sisters. And those those things are prohibited by Abba later on. Yeah, in the Torah, you're going to get to where in, in Moshe's Torah, it says you cannot marry a woman and her sister, which, of course, Yaakov did, right? And Moshe was the product of that, too, when you think about it. Okay, let's go to John. John, how are you, brother? What's going on in South Dakota? Or as we call it, the beach. Oh, everything, everything is going on in South Dakota. <laughs> it's trying to get nice out. Um, I want to be as quick as I can here, uh, kind of speaking towards this uh, being taken out of the way or the, the rapture, of course, Matthew 24 says immediately after the uh, uh, the tribulation of those days, you know, that's when the sun, moon, the stars, and then the son of man, the sign of the son of man appears, right? But in uh, uh, Isaiah 57, the first couple of verses, the righteous perish and no man lays it to heart and the merciful men are taken away. None consider that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace and they shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. And I think that is such an important picture here as we enter into this darkness, this time of darkness, that that many, I think, righteous will die ahead of time, just like just like before the flood, right? Methuselah, they knew, when you study out Methuselah, they knew when Methuselah died, tribulation was coming on the earth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely good. And I've already known, I mean, you know, come on, we're going to all kinds of funerals now, right? Right. Uh, we had a right. friend, uh, we had a friend in, in um, Marysville, Washington, and just a beautiful young woman. And, you know, she finally succumbed to um, leukemia here last week. Uh, my, my wife's best friend, she went down to visit her in Portland. She was going in for hip surgery. And she went in for hip surgery. And my wife is talking to her on the phone. She comes out of the surgery. She's doing okay. And by 2 o'clock the following afternoon, she was gone. Mm -hmm. And it's because Yah is removing some of the people he's removing from this earth. He's saying, you know, you rest right. in righteousness. And, and when you, again, when you read Ezra chapter 7, and you compare that to what's being said here in Isaiah, that the upright will, will you know, will, they will rest in their uprightness, right? This idea of sleeping. And in Ezra 7, it talks about that they, the angels guard a profound quiet, a mm. profound quiet, Right. And this is this profound quiet that, that all of us will rest in until the resurrection. However, when we talk about the resurrection, what do we see? We see Mashiach goes to Miriam's house, Martha's house, and he gets there late because Eleazar has been dead for four days. He gets there late. And he says, and she says to him, if you had just gotten here earlier, you know, you could have healed him if you had just gotten here earlier. And she says, but I know, you know, he'll rise again on the last day. So she gives the scriptural citation. He will rise again on the last day. He'll be resurrected on the last day. And Mashiach says to her, I tell you the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. 
right? This is what he says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. So, you know, for us, but in Revelation, it tells us that those who die in Mashiach are going to sleep through the, the millennial reign. Only those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Mashiach and the keeping of the commandments are going to be returning to earth for that millennial kingdom. The rest of us are going to be sleeping in a profound quiet for a thousand years. You know, mm-hmm. you're finally going to get that Sabbath that you refuse to take. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And not to keep dragging this up, but in, in that Matthew passage, speaking about the, the, uh, the woman and adult, or uh, the, this idea of the, uh, we were just talking kinsman about redeemer, it, the, the kinsman the, redeemer, well, the kinsman redeemer, but you know, the divorce. Okay. So yeah. when you go through all of the old Testament, what does he say? All uh, Israelites, they all went whoring. They went whoring. So isn't there also a, a, an idea there in, in that Matthew passage about uh, uh, not to take other gods, not to, not to fornicate with uh, other gods. Yeah. I mean, with other gods. fornication, the prohibition on fornication has to do with it being idolatry, right? Yeah. And, and if you look right. at what happened to Solomon, you know, Solomon took a thousand wives and he ended up with a thousand gods, right? Because he right. followed what his wives required him to do. And so, you know, so the thing is, it that's why, you know, virtually all fornication, whether you're talking about homosexual fornication or any other kind of fornication, Paul says, this is idolatry. Because you're engaged in idolizing something else. You're idolizing something else. And you're, you're committing a new God. And so that's why the, the scripture directly relates. Whoring is really a spiritual situation first before it becomes a physical situation. And that's why we have to be very, very careful about, you know, introducing other quote unquote Elohim. Right. Exactly. So, okay, John. Um, that was just that was just the quick stuff here. I, I do have this now other you got the thing. Long a, question. Now I have a real one. Yeah. And and Shemuel, this is in uh, uh, our reading for this week. Uh, I'm trying to say these names. Shemuel Rishon, first Samuel, right? First uh, chapter 15, verse 22. And Shemuel said, Has Yahuwah as great delight in ascending smoke offerings? And he's talking to Saul about uh, bringing the animals back, you know. And then they're going to sacrifice him, right? And as a great delight in ascending smoke offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahuwah. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken is uh, than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. This is so profound. This verse 23 just struck me so hard this morning. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahuwah, he has also rejected you from being king. And then, of course, when we get into the New Testament, you have it in Matthew 9. Uh, he, he speaks. I'm not going to read it all. But he, he says, if you go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then in chapter 12, he said, had you gone and learned what this meant. So, And he's talking to the Pharisees both times, right? Hey. So part of me was wondering, and I know you said before that the Pharisees were the sons of Perez, but were they, 
it's, it's kind of striking me. Were they also, were these name stealers too, like you were talking yes, about? Yes, they were name stealers. Yes. Okay. They were name stealers, as were the Sadducees name stealers. The, they, the Sadducees were claiming to be sons of Zadok. They were not. They were Edomites. The Pharisees mm -hmm. were claiming to be the sons of Pharez. They were not. They were Edomites. They were all usurpers to claim the true Pharisee was Mashiach. He was truly a Pharisee because he was the son of mm -hmm. Pharez. The other guys were usurpers. And so oh, when you see yeah. this here, Mashiach, that's the only passage out of the New Testament Messiah quotes twice. Have not you read, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's yeah. such an important aspect. I mean, Micah 6, 8, right? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does Yah require of you, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with Yah. And here we have, and here we have it here in, in 1 Samuel. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Well, why? Because when you obey, you don't commit the sin, right? I told you, mm -hmm. thou shalt not steal. Okay, I won't steal. Great. When you're sacrificing, you're burning an animal because you did steal. So now you're going to bring your animal down. Okay, I'm going to bring my animal down to the priest. Uh, here, kill this lamb. And, you know, he used it. He uses fat and put that on one part of the altar. And you guys can eat the rest because I did steal. Well, what Mashiach is saying point blank and what this passage is saying here, why didn't you just obey? It's better if you had obeyed and you don't need to sacrifice than it is that you disobeyed and now you do need to sacrifice. So when you look at Solomon's offering 10,000 bulls and even more sheep at the dedication of the first temple, exactly how many sins did you commit over there, Solomon? 10, you, you know, come on, John, you're in cattle country. I know you are. Yep. How many yep. acres does it take to feed 10,000 cattle. It takes a lot. Depends. Actually, in South Dakota, you have some, the eastern part, you can go about one cow calf per acre, but you get out west, um, you're looking at somewhere between, between 10 and 15, and then you go south of there, and you're talking 100 acres, you get down into the desert area, see? Yeah, okay, cow, so let's, let's, let's talk eastern, eastern South Dakota, let's call it one, one bull per acre. So you're talking 10,000 acres to maintain these bulls that are being sacrificed. And 10,000 bulls, how much blood do you think was floating through Jerusalem? 10,000 bulls? I mean, you know that that place stunk to high, holy heaven with all of that, all of that, you know, beef parts and everything else all around. I mean, it had to stink something bad and blood everywhere. And all of this because Solomon wanted to sacrifice for the sins he was going to do and the sins he had done. And That's what does okay. say? Don't do it at all. Don't obey first. Obey. Right. And then right. that way you don't have to sacrifice, right? Because rebellion, when you rebel and you say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and sin and then sacrifice, that's witchcraft. Yeah. When you think and that, that mind, reminded me here in, uh, in, uh, 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 Second Thessalonians, you know, this, this idea of Second Thessalonians to this falling away. From what I understand in the Greek, that means the rebellion. And so yeah. is that linked then directly to this? Because that's what struck me this morning. This rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness and iniquity. Yeah. Well, well it's, isn't again, that what we see today? Again, what you're seeing is this idea, and this idea permeates everything, right? Well, I can commit the sin and then go light a candle. 
I can commit the sin and then go pray for an indulgence from the priest. I can commit the sin and then go to confession this Saturday, right? I can commit the sin and then I've got this. So I can commit the sin and then I do this. When you have that in your mind that that's what you're going to do, I'm going to do a sacrifice, I'm going to do a confession, I'm going to do this. When that comes into your mind, that's witchcraft. That's what he's saying. That is witchcraft. That's a form mm -hmm. of sorcery, right? Like, for instance, when you have this idea, the same idea comes into when you're going to do incantation. Well, I'm going to incant. I'm going to go through this ritual of saying this big, long prayer in exactly the way they told me to say this prayer, which will allow me to atone for my sin. That's incantation. That's witchcraft. That's rebellion because you're not obeying. You're disobeying and then trying to make up for it after the fact, right? And so this, and, be, and because we have this kind of mindset, which by the way, has been taught in the Christian church over and over and over and over and over again, this is taught. You see world leaders who believe, well, look, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't get caught. And when I do get caught, I'll just pay off somebody. I'll, you know, And so we have this condition with Mr. Zelensky in Ukraine who's been the president there for three years and he's worth 1.2 billion dollars and owns a 33 million dollar house in miami man the, you know the presidency in ukraine pays 100 times more than the presidency in the united states i mean what a gig right if i'd have known that mm -hmm. i'd have put in my resume <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks a lot <laughs> okay all right thanks okay karen lehote Dr. P, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, it's Lahote. <laughs> Lahote. That is my husband's Hungarian name as opposed to my 14-letter German maiden name, which was Burkhatsmaya. Ah, okay. Uh, oh. So all I have to say is uh, Farfenugan. <laughs> but I am half Irish. Um, I was going to ask about St. Patrick, but that's going to have to wait for another day because I wanted to know who he truly was, but because it's getting so long here, um, St. Patrick was a militant arm of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. Who they, they spread a myth about him chasing the snakes out of Ireland, but he actually used the point of the sword to impose Roman Catholicism on the island. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to try to skip over some of the scriptures. Um, I'm going to shorten them. I wanted to share... Um, the beautiful spiritual aspect of Yahusha being the bread of life and also the practical application of what the father has shown me and my, my family. We moved from Chicago. Uh, we owned our home. We didn't grow anything. We needed to get out of there. We moved to Georgia. We don't know anyone. I have, we rent and I have red clay, literally clay. So I'm not growing any, anything here. And um, well, you can always plant kudzu. Of course, you can't add a little what is it? I don't know. Kudzu. I don't know what that is. You can find it anytime you drive down the freeway and you see a car completely overgrown with vines. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, I know what that is. So I wanted to share with people that, um, you know, I was very discouraged in the last year and a half, two years we've been here because everyone's talking about their acreage and their animals and their planting. And I'm, I'm thinking of what I could do to trade. So I've gotten to know different chicken farmers and that kind of thing. And I haven't gotten this far, but I'm learning how to make real bread with GMO free grain. And I wanted to encourage people before they argue about it to really consider and pray what that is that I'm saying, because a lot of things that we were even taught in the natural health world are also not true. 
Um, so I'll be I'll be brief about this. About 15 minutes away from me is this place called Breadbeckers. And there was a lovely sister in the chat on Telegram. Her name is Edith Cisneros. She posted a video about a week ago from a wonderful brother named Nathan Reynolds. And he, he uses your suffer, Dr. P. And he interviewed her and she's got great interviews. And um, basically what she did was she's, she's a you know, food scientist, very smart woman. She's a believer. Um, she really, really took apart all of these things about wheat that we've been told that are really wrong. Um, and there was a book called Wheat Belly. I just want to tell people about it. Mm-hmm. The things that that person, and I can't, I can't speak. I'm not a doctor. Um, um, he, this person, the person that wrote that book, I hope I'm saying this correctly. I think he, he did some studies, but the studies were not really correct. She explains it better in her article. Um, so I'm going to read briefly out of, she has a book. It's actually her recipe collection, but I'm going to, I'm going to read as quickly as I can. I'm going to skip around, but, um, and it, it gets well, back. Wait a minute, before you do that, Karen, before you do that, yeah. Uh, yeah. let me say this because we are, we're getting kind of long in the draw here. Okay. We're already kind of past our, we're already 40 minutes past our, our uh, magical three hour limit, which really okay. doesn't exist, really doesn't exist. But okay. I do, I do want to hear what you're having to say, Karen. But I mean, the thing is this, there's a couple of people who put some stuff in the, in the chat and you can read that when you, when you see it, like you can try using raised beds uh, for, for uh, raising a garden, uh, yeah. sprout seeds and ball jars. There's a number of things, there's a plenty of alternatives. And if you talk to some of the people who live in Georgia who have done gardening, they'll also be able to give you some tips. Yeah. And, uh, but what you're saying about the wheat, I think is, uh, is extremely important. Now, the, now, tell us the name of the book again. It's called Wheat okay. Belly. Um, well, no, that's not the book you want. Um, that's more of like all the other things that we've learned in the last two years. It's more of, um, someone's, someone's con- conjecture. Really the thing that causes that wheat belly is the glyphosates that have been sprayed. But, the glyphosates, uh, right, right. Sure. Yeah. What's, so it's what's just, the name of the book you're talking about? It's just a uh, bread. If you go to breadbeckers.com, just B R E A D Beckers, B E C K E R S.com. Um, she's, she has all this information and they, they get the best wheat that's non-GMO and she's, she's, she has lectures on YouTube about why you really want, because of the vitamin E and it does tie into Yahusha, but we don't have time because he says he's the bread of life. And why would he use that? I know that the bread of life means more to us than just, you know, a loaf of bread on our table, but why would he use something like that? He didn't say anything about shellfish or some other grain or. And literally, it has all the vitamins that you need. Yeah, and- he didn't say he was the turnip of life or the carrot <laughs> of life, right? But he was the bread of life, right? Yeah, well, Very I'll tell you, uh, as, as Shell has mentioned in the chat, Karen, this kind of thing is well talked about on the Telegram community. It's a great yeah. place to share this kind of thing where people can go back and forth and kind of get through yep. this kind of stuff. Great place to be, okay? Yep. Okay, thank you. All right. And okay. Well, one more you. thing, Doctor Pigeon. Did you tell Chris that he has to grow his beard as long as yours for next week? <laughs> yeah, I think Chris has already found the razors. I mean, okay. I think we've got to rule that one out. So, All right. Thank you, Shalom. Thanks, Karen. Shalom. Okay, uh, Jessica. So, top of the morning to you there in Ireland. What's happening there? Well, it's top of the night. Top of the night for you there in Ireland. I better hurry. I had a couple of things to share, but then. I was listening to everybody and um, 
I'd like to kind of, there was something that Chris said that really, it's been on my heart all week, this thing about, you know, Moses law and the law, the law, like we were talking about contradictions and Yahusha says in Matthew, you have heard it, you know, you've heard it being said, um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, and he goes down, you know, he does a whole thing on it. And you ha- I, ha- I kind of ask myself, well, you know, what is Yah's law? And Chris said something really interesting about, you know, that Adam and Eve broke Yah's law and they were, um, I can't remember the word he used, but they were like, you know, flushed out of the land. Yeah, they were cast and, away from the land, yeah. Yeah, and Yahusha said that um, he didn't come to to, cha- to change the law or to, I can't remember. And he, he didn't, he he said didn't that, come to overturn the Torah, but he came to fulfill the Torah. Yeah, and then he said that not one yod or tittle would, would pass away, that, you know, the heavens and the earth could pass away. And I sometimes wonder, or I'm, I'm wondering as I'm listening to everyone, is there like, you know, is, is Moses' law more of a flesh law and Yahushua's, what Yahushua was saying more when we're in spirit? You know, that's than- a great question, Jessica. That's a great question. And yeah, Moses' law does really, a lot of it concerns the flesh, right? And you also have, when, when Mashiach says, look, because of your stiff-neckedness, Moshe suffered to give you this certificate of divorce, but I tell you, in the beginning, it was not so. And what he's really saying there is Moshe gave a lot of Torah commands because he couldn't get those people out of Egypt. He yeah. could not, he, you know, he, he brought the people out of Egypt, but he couldn't get the Egypt out of the people. And you still can't get the Egypt out of the people. That's why there's a, an Egyptian obelisk in front of the Vatican. There's an Egyptian obelisk in the city of London. There's an Egyptian obelisk in Washington, D.C. You know, you got these huge Egyptian obelisks because we still have never gotten the Egyptian out of the people. Moshe tried in his Torah to do that. And this is part of the reason why you had, uh, you know, this lamb offering. You know, put a lamb on the grill so that there's you can always smell lamb burning over there on the grill. Why? Because I want you to put away the, 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 the smell of uh, pig flesh. I want you to put away the smell of human flesh that's being burned. You're not going to smell that anymore. You're going to smell only lamb because I'm going to take the smells of Egypt out of your nostrils. He never did. He never did. That's why they all died in the desert because he couldn't get the Egypt out of them. Yeah. But you see, even in Ezekiel, Ezekiel says Moshe gave them bad law. That's what Ezekiel says. And there, not every law of Moshe's was bad law. But there were some laws that, I mean, when you read the law about slavery in Moshe's Torah, I'm sorry, I don't support that law. I stand with William Wilberforce, you know, who stood before the parliament in Britain saying, no, slavery is not right. It's not part of the human equation, especially since the death of Mashiach and the opening of the doors of heaven to all human life. We We cannot have other human beings as slaves. And so I, so, but Moshe's Torah did provide for that. And so you see things in Moshe's Torah, no one wants to say it, but Moshe was a sinner, Moshe was a murderer, and there are many things that Moshe gave that were 
I agree with Chris. They were errant. But when you but when you say this, people go nuts. It's like, how dare you say that there's a contradiction in scripture? You know, we've spent years and years trying to prove there aren't any. No, you spent years and years manipulating the text to prove that there weren't any. But the truth is, yeah, is that when you when you get a factual record that comes to multiple authors over thousands of years, you're going to get factual discrepancies. That's what's going to happen. And uh, it doesn't change the truth of Yah's message. That is sound, is sound doctrine. And what does Yah say? How do we know what is true and what isn't? By the testimony of two or more witnesses, we know the matter is established. So when we're talking about when we talk about Mashiach fulfilling the Torah, we're talking about this idea that there would be a blood sacrifice for the blood sin of Adam and Eve. And that blood sacrifice was always intended to be Mashiach, not a lamb, not a bull, none of that stuff, which would not do anything for you other than allow you to live in the community so that under Moshe's law, you would not be stoned to death. That's what it did for you. It didn't otherwise atone for your sins. And so when we see this, you know, we have to, you know, we just have to recognize that with, with Moshe, Mashiach is the one who says, look, I mean, Moshe was right that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is true when it comes to compensation, mm-hmm. but it's not true when it comes to vengeance because vengeance is mine, says Yahweh. So if somebody kills your child, you don't go kill their child. You have the right to just compensation, but you do not have the right to vengeance because that belongs in the hand of Yah. And it's the same thing with the Shabbat, right? Mashiach is the essence of the Shabbat, not some rabbi telling you you can't inhale, right? Yeah, and and Yah also said that he would write his law on our hearts and give us us hearts of flesh. So um, I don't know. I sometimes think that there's like spiritual law and there's the... Because it also always refers to law of Moses. It says law of Moses, and then it says Yah's law. So, well, I don't here's know. what Paul talks about under Moshe's law: if you sinned, you're going to die. Yeah. You missed the Sabbath, stone him. You're a rebellious son, stone him. You're an adulterous woman, stone her. Right? I mean, it's like you committed the sin, die. So this is the law of sin and death. There's a death penalty associated with your sin. And with Mashiach, you get something that is entirely new. You get what? The doctrine of forgiveness. Now, unless that doctrine had come in, we would have all killed each other before we turned 30. Because we would have proved that every one of us was a sinner deserving of death. But Mashiach is able to say, look, when you understand that there is a doctrine of forgiveness, now I can tell you the full standard of adultery. That's just lusting in your eyes. You don't have to actually do it. You can just think about doing it, and that commits the sin. It's not just murdering somebody. It's thinking about murdering somebody, and that commits the sin. He can tell us the rest of the story. Yeah, Rob, it's really hard for me to read that, brother, because it's... Uh, I'll just quickly say, so you just want to, you were talk. sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, um, you were talking about um, the elect as well. And you talked about, um, you know, y'all just reaching out to, to people. And, you know, like I'm, I'm a therapist, which is really difficult sometimes because I have to kind of, I have to be careful, but 
if I even get a crack or the Ruach draws me or um, God comes up in conversation, I'm in there. I'm in there as quick as I can. But the strangest thing happened several weeks ago. I had a client that was coming to me and she was like openly a witch. And um, she was very, she had no shalom, you know, she was very fidgety all the time. Her legs were always jittering. And um, one day I, I had her and I don't know how it happened, but I suddenly heard myself saying to her, I want to read you something. And I, I got my mobile phone and I got the Bible up and I got the, you know, the prayer that Yahushua says uh, for his disciples, the, the last yeah, prayer. Yeah, in John 17. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I started reading that and she started weeping and weeping. And um, then I gave her some other stuff to read and she went off and she came back the next week and all the she was like look at me she wasn't jittering and her leg had stopped jumping and she got baptized and she's like I belong oh. to Yahushua yes. ah, hallelujah all right that's the praise report we needed to hear Jessica thank you so much for bringing it thank you that's what we needed today thank you okay I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of move quickly because we're down to the last eight minutes and I'm, I'm sorry to say it Catherine and Trekking with Preacher and Anna, we have, we've gone through a very short time. So if you can, kind of go quickly, if you would, so the others can speak. Okay, Catherine, how are you? Catherine, you there? I'm here now. Stephen, uh-huh. I just wanted to pray quickly. Okay. okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Yahuwah, we just come before you. You know the mission Stephen's going on, Father. Father, we pray for the Sefer Company. Father, we pray that they'll have new ideas, exciting ideas on how to counteract certain things. And Father, we pray that you'll give them wisdom and knowledge, Father, and how to produce these Sefers cheaper. Father, I pray that you will give them a special anointing, Father, as they join together to iron out problems. And I pray that the Ruach HaKadosh will be with them all, Father, as they come forward in this meeting. And, Father, I just pray for Stephen's safety on the roads, Father. And, Father, we lift him up before you. And, Father, we thank you that he's our teacher. And, Father, we just pray for a hedge of protection around him as he travels. Thank in Yahushua's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, sister. I really appreciate that. Okay. Okay. Blessings. Okay. Trekking with Preacher. I thought I was going to call tell you earlier, but you told me to hold on when Rob was speaking. I meant to ask you, um, what makes a marriage? Is it the initial act of consummation or is it the legal document that makes a marriage or is it oh yeah yeah Uh, let me answer that i'll tell you because the legal document really doesn't mean hiding her hair quite frankly uh the legal document the licensing of marriage was created by the state in order to restrict interracial marriages which is why they introduced it and it's a 19th century creation before the 19th century there was no such thing as a marriage license And there was no such thing as the state approving a marriage. You were married 
in front of two witnesses, in front of your pastor, in front of your rabbi, in front of your preacher, in front of your reverend, whatever. But it was done accordance to the circumstances of the social order, had nothing to do with a license, right? And there are still people that get covenant married now today. And they, but you know, you have to be very careful because in our secular world, if you're not in a licensed marriage, your wife cannot participate in your social security income and this benefit and that benefit and so forth. But other than that, uh, you know, in a covenant marriage, there are many people who enter into a covenant marriage rather than a licensed marriage. And the covenant marriage- So is, is, it, the, is it the two witnesses that make a marriage under the eyes of Yah? Well, because two witnesses I'm, I'm, establish I'm a matter. Yeah, yeah, right. And you're going to take the answer offline. Tell me you're going to take it offline. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I'm, I'm, I looked online and I found several articles that contradicted each other constantly. And right now, the best answer is you, because I share your podcast with my friend, Christina, who, who wants to marry a man, but she doesn't know if she's still married to somebody else because she fornicated with them in her old life of sin. Before well, there's the there's a whole bunch of stuff that go into that complexity that we can't deal with today. Okay, but I'll just say this to you that when you're talking about a covenant marriage, you know it is good to have two witnesses. And, you know, and technically, you're supposed to give seven oaths during the marriage too, right? This is a sheba to give seven oaths. We'll have to spend more time on this on another occasion, though. But I'll just say this: that the marriage license is a latter day creation. That really doesn't have much to do with marriage. It has to do with the idea that the state is somehow going to interfere and set itself in there as God. And they have no business being there, quite frankly. All right. Thanks for that question. And it's good seeing you, Trekking. Come back and visit us again next week, okay? And drive safely, brother. I am. I'm trying to. Jack knife last night. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yikes. All right. Okay. Okay, brother. Take care. All right. Anna, Alphonse, how are you, brother? Shalom to everyone. Um, my, my, my question is more of a follow-up to Jessica's question as well, with regards to Moshe's law. So when we read in Yuvarim chapter 31, verse 26, it talks about the Torah of Moshe being placed outside of the covenant. So I wanted to just ask, is that related to the flaws that are found in Moshe's law as well, or what's the significance of that? Well, you know, uh, now can you, where, where were you talking about and What was your scriptural site? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26. Okay, 31, 26. Okay, hold on just one second. Let's take a look since this will be the last question. Deuteronomy 21, 36. That's what you said. 31, 26. 31, 26. Okay, see, my had just kicked in. And then the next thing you know, I'm wandering around in it. See if I don't know what's going on. Okay. Okay, yeah, so here, take this sefer of the Torah and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh Elohim, that it might be therefore a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck, and behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against Yahweh. How much more after my death? Now, it's very interesting because the Devarim, the Ten Devarim, the Decalogue, they're inside the Ark of the Covenant. Moshe's Torah is outside the Ark of the Covenant, and it is given as a witness against the people. In other words, Moshe's Torah testifies to their rebellion. It testifies to their rebellion. It testifies to their open sin. These are the things all, there wouldn't have been a prohibition against what they were doing if they hadn't been doing it, right? 
thou shalt not in Moshe's law means you were. And therefore, so when you get a ban on cannibalism, why did he ban cannibalism? Because they were eating human flesh. When you get a ban on bestiality, why did he ban it? Because they were doing it. And so, you know, so this is why the this testimony of Moshe on the outside of the ark is a witness against them as to the rebellion. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, you have a passage, I think it's in Deuteronomy 5, where Moshe tells you that Moshe's, Yah's Torah is given to you as that binding covenant, but Moshe's Torah is given to you for wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Moshe's Torah is a different story. Moshe's Torah is given that you might have the logic of things, right? Jasher 88.4. Okay, now we're talking. Now I can see what you're talking about. And so when, when 88.4. So this is not to discount Moshe, but this is to give people an understanding that if you, if you think you're getting to heaven, by doing Moshe's Torah, well, you're wrong. And a lot of people, of course, what Paul's big argument was, if you think that you're automatically sanctified because you're circumcised, you're definitely wrong. Okay? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So here in, in, in 88, four, it says, no man shall stand up against you all the days of your life as I was with Moshe, so I will be with you. Only be strong and of good courage to observe all of the Torah which Moshe commanded you, turn not from the way either to the right or to the left in order that you may prosper in all that you do. And again, you see that we have this instruction given to the chosen people, do these things, you will prosper. Don't do these things, you will be cursed. And we know that they started out trying to do them to some degree and then failed and they ended up getting divorced. And as a result of the divorce that took place between the house of Yasharel and the house of Judah, they were divorced and tossed out. The covenant had to be renewed. And when the covenant was renewed, it was not only renewed, but it was clarified. The Shabbat was clarified. The eye for an eye was clarified. The doctrine on marriage was clarified. You had these things that were clarified that Mashiach gave us clear understanding, which, by the way, had also been prophesied as well, right? And so the renewed covenant is something for us. And so when we look at this kind of thing, we, you have to recognize all of scripture is the Torah, not just Moshe, because the Torah means instruction. All of scripture is the instruction. And so you can't just go in and say, well, I'm going to read Moshe and that's it. And you're, you know, I'm going to read the Samaritan Pentateuch. And that's the end of the discussion. You're going to leave out Proverbs. You're going to leave out David. You can leave out Isaiah, you can leave out Jeremiah, you know, and this way Mashiach said salvation is of the Yahudim. He was telling the woman at the well, you who read only the Samaritan Pentateuch, salvation comes through all of the scripture. It comes through the Ketuvim, comes through the Nevi'im, it comes through the writings, and it comes through the prophets, and it comes through the Besorah. So it's all of scripture that is the Torah, that's the instruction. And and Paul says the same thing. All of scripture is good for reproof and understanding. So this is what we use. So don't try to, don't try to pin Moses down into a box, okay? You, you want to be able to read Moshe and have understanding of what it is. But don't think that Moses, you know, what, what does Mashiach say? If you're going to justify yourself by the law of Moshe, when you reach heaven, Moshe will be your judge, not me. Not the father of forgiveness, but the father of the Torah of sin and death. 
He will be your judge, not me. You stand before Moshe and he says, hey, you know, I've been looking at your life. And for 12 years, you didn't honor the Sabbath at all. That's, you know, 12 times 300, 12 times 52 death penalties for you. That's Moshe. Yahshua doesn't say that, right? Let us be judged in white linen before the father of forgiveness. Okay, hallelujah. Thank you, Alphonse, for your question. Okay. All right, let's pray and we will say uh, to a blessed Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Shema Tehilinu Yahuwah. Shema Kolinu. Hear your people, Father. Hear our prayers as we lift our petitions to you. Bless this fellowship, Father. Bless them and keep them. Cover us this week with your protection, with your guidance. May your ruach be a, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud before us in day that we might know what our path is and where to go. I pray for all the families, the brothers and sisters here, that the husbands would be joined closer to their wives and the wives to their husbands, the fathers to their children, the children to their fathers, that forgiveness would be upon our lips, that we might forgive one another and restore relationships to one another. That's my prayer for this week, Father. Bless us and keep us that we might be able to join together next week in fellowship. Thank you, Father. I pray for Chris when he leads for the next two weeks that you would bless him and keep him and give him a uh, give him a, a powerful word, Father, from you, directly from you. We pray all these things in the name of Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, Shabbat Shalom, and we'll see you again soon. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.